Welcome to episode two of Miniatures Monthly at the Crate and Crowbar. My name is Chris Thurston and I'm joined by Tom Senior. Hello. Hello. We're back again. We are. We've done it. Again. We're doing it again. It's the end of March-ish and it's been fucking ages. Oh my God. So much stuff has happened, Chris. I know. So we, um, the first episode of of this, you know, spin-off pod we recorded uh, quite a while ago, like quite a long time before it even went up Mm. because we were, you know, experimenting the format, figuring out what we were going to do with it, trying to figure out what it was even going to be called. And so we, you know, we went through the process, we recorded it, and then we worked on it, and then it went up. But the net result of that is that we've had a probably unprecedented break between the last time we did that. Yes. And and now. About six weeks. Yeah. More than that, I think. Mm, It might even be closer to two months. Wow. Which is kind of nuts. And then Games Workshop, in the two-month interim, decided to announce so much stuff. Loads of stuff um, across the board, really. So, um so we figured as we as we gingerly step closer and closer to having an actual structure for this podcast um that we would start off this episode and indeed probably quite a lot of future episodes with a bit of news not just a bit of news quite a lot of news it's gonna be the biggest news section ever ever since the beginning of the podcast (laughs) yeah indeed episode two just breaking boundaries absolutely um yeah so um and you know, so this will be probably quite a lot of AOS news and AOS Age of Sigmar related news, but actually not just limited to that because mm. it seems to be news all over in Games Workshop land. Yeah, but where should we start? Where we should start is something that now feels like old news, um, which is the fact that so since we we last met, uh, your faction in Age of Sigmar, Tom Stormcast Eternals, have had an entire book and an entire sub faction. They have, they've, uh, they've got, they've had the rules update mm-hmm. and they've, uh, got a new chamber, the Vanguard chamber, who are basically, uh, just kind of rogues who live out in the wilderness and they've been out in the mortal realms for, uh, you know, decades, maybe centuries. They're actually kind of properly bedded into the universe now. You know, the Stormcast have left Azir. They've left this sanctuary where they've been for hundreds of years and they're actually starting to, um, change based on the realms they encounter. Yeah. And the Vanguard uh, are a reflection of that. Because they're actually just, they're, they, they're, they've gone native. Basically. They're the least pristine of the shiny golden men from space. They are. They're, they're all scratched up. Some of them apparently have just started daubing war paint on them, on their armor and stuff like that. They've, you know, they're wearing animals they've killed. Um, yeah. And so they've, they've, they're properly, um, they don't even answer to summons in his ear. Like it's part of the fluff that you read in the new book is that they're not expected to turn up when Sigmar says, we need to meet and discuss stuff because they're just expected to always be in the realms, just kind mm. of scoping things out, uh, launching these kind of hit and run attacks and basically serving as the intelligence services for Sigmar's, uh, crusade. And they're, they're the first sort of this and the new version of Warhammer Quest, which is called Shadows, um, Shadows of a Hammerhole. Mm. Um, is it Shadows of a Hammerhole? I think so. Hammerhole is the city. Yeah. Which yeah. is, um, it's a reference to Shadows of Innsmouth from Lovecraft, yeah, I believe. Yeah, of course. Um, that, these two things have been like the first glimpse at the way that the Order faction, which is broadly like the good guys faction in Age of Sigmar mm. has changed. Because one of the things we talked about last month is the way that they rolled out this completely new fiction and that it was incredibly abstract when that fiction started. Because it was, because it was this sort of, you know, highly 
um sort of high high fantasy force of good returning to a world that had become entirely high fantasy evil hmm. and they've been quite explicit now that of the age of sigmar has been around for about two years but the fiction has moved on like several lifetimes um several generations have passed there are cities now those stormcast eternals have been around a long time have now been around long enough to have these like vanguard chambers that are living wild out in the wilderness riding chocobos yeah the chocobos the birds everything's about birds in age of sigmar now yeah, everything's uh, about birds yeah this year because of course each have had their lord of change who's just a big old bird yeah zangor birdmen birdmen ripped and, birdmen and uh not to be outdone the stormcast have uh befriended chocobos in the wilderness and now ride them uh into battle and they can they're incredibly fast and they can kind of phase out of existence and travel across the entire length of a battle of a battlefield in the blink of an eye and then strike unawares from strange angles this also was the um what well, the other thing i guess we're seeing is like it was interesting like i think maybe a lot of people expected the next battle tone which is essentially what codexes kind of are in other contexts right like yeah um they're not mandatory because all the rules are free anyway but they add a bunch of stuff um people might have been expecting a faction other than stormcast given mm. that stormcast is the post faction but this is also sort of a rebalancing of stormcast that reigns a lot of stuff in as well definitely they've uh they've they've done a really good job with the new rule book of um codifying what the stormcast's whole deal is in a much more balanced <laughs> and uh reasonable way so the idea is that stormcast can uh ride lightning bolts down to the battlefield and sigma could throw them out of azir and they could just sort of teleport down mm. uh, and that used to be a function of uh battalions where these are basically formations where if you have the correct combination of units they gain special powers uh, and a lot of these were very very powerful so you could uh send your flying guys into the middle of a battle and uh any within a range of them you could put down a couple of units and it was like a guaranteed thing and some of that still exists but that has been turned into just a general rule for the stormcast now where every turn you can put uh, at the start of the battle you could put any number of units into the celestial realm and every turn you have to roll for them and on a three plus they come down and now it's just a, a part of their mm. whole deal it's not even a thing you have to you don't have to buy a certain number of units or arrange your army in a certain way it's just the thing that the stormcast can do because that's just their whole thing yeah it feels like one thing that's interesting about it is it feels like the rule set is maturing mm. live without something big like an addition change or something like that yeah, like yeah it feels like maybe maybe age of sigmar won't get age of sigmar second edition no. but it will keep just you know more like more like a video game more like the kind of stuff that we're used to this felt like a patch for the stormcast is the way i would put it yeah and if if they released one of these every year and also kind of opened another chamber which they've set themselves lots of scope to do that there's there's chambers they mentioned like the ruination chamber yeah. <laughs> uh, which is yet to open so that is, it seems like it's going to be like an annual release for the, the one that gets me is the logister chamber <laughs> yeah who i presume are the accountants <laughs> yeah they're just there with giant kind of scrolls, ledges yeah ledges. um yeah see what they could do on the battlefield <laughs> but yeah so it feels like they're sort of um because there were battle times before this and and disciples of zinch which is the one that came out in january from you know for my my particular faction of bird dudes hmm. um they sort of set this balance of a whole bunch of new fiction um and not just fiction in the sort of traditional story plot development sense but more broadly like world building yeah like maps like the the stormcast like i found myself i bought the um i bought the stormcast eternal battle tome even though i don't have a stormcast army hmm. because i want the maps and the fiction and the art and that stuff yeah and because it feels like just the latest edition you know part of the game 
um, they're sort of set this this template now for what a uh, battle tome means, which feels very kind of year two. You know, it was like yeah. the sort of the those tentative first steps of the first year of the game have kind of passed, and they're now established like a template that could easily be built on. And the, you, you, like you say, the best example of that is the fact that the latest battle tome gives you a, a diagram of how the Stormcaster tunnels are laid out as an organizational structure. Yeah. And in addition to the extremist chamber and the Vanguard chamber, which were last year's and this year's chambers respectively, mm. there's this big list of closed chambers, which feels like mm. them saying we have three more years of this and you can look forward to discovering what, yeah, what the Logister chamber is. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I, I'm really excited about that. I think um, I worry that the Stormcast Eternals get that sort of attention and other factions don't necessarily. Mm. Um, so I think I, I've been very lucky for buying into the sort of poster army for the game um, because they're they are well supported in a way that if I was collecting, um, well, Zine should have done well, but you know. Seraphon, maybe. Seraphon, yeah. Old Lizard Men. Stuff that isn't on the box, basically. Like, I think you, you're going to be, you're always going to be well served if you've, you've got a corn army, if you've got uh, a Stormcast army. It's... Uh, but the if I had like if I was collecting death, um, the death faction has been really kind of untended to since the start of Age of Sigma. Yeah, yeah, and it's definitely a concern. Obviously, they it's one of the weaknesses of this growth model for a game, which has affected Warhammer since the dawn of time. Mm. Which is that um, there aren't, you know, I think in a, in a different context or in the context that maybe we come from, like in video games, you'd have different teams working on different factions, kind of developing those things. Whereas actually it is an, it is a team building the new stuff for Age of Sigmar and it progresses faction by faction. Yeah. And it is eventually your turn. Like Zinch just had their turn. Hmm. And I fully anticipate that we won't see new Zinch stuff at any scale for years. Yeah. yeah like definitely. it's, it's done, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, that, that brings us on to, so the other thing they announced and I think maybe surprised people is the next battle tome is called Blades of Corn, which is going to be for Corn what Disciples of Zinch was for Zinch and what um, Stormcast Eternals was for the Stormcast, which is, um, no new units, just a new book that ties all the existing stuff together with loads of new rules. Like, you know, one of the things that you, you just got and we, we played with it today is the fact that Stormcast get loads of new prayers and sort of abilities oh, yeah. to wrap around existing units. Corn's getting a very similar thing. And I'm actually pretty excited about that because, you know, like I mentioned last week, I've got the Corn side project on the go. Thanks to, you know, I, I, I left my day job in the last month. And, um, kind leaving gift, um, was a start collecting corn box. So I've got that waiting for me when my current big pile of bird men are, are done. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of exciting to know that that's on the horizon, but again, that's another, um, sort of feels like a consolidation of the rules and the fiction for a faction that is on the box for the start, you know, yeah. the, you know, corn and stormcast are the two poster factions for age of sigmar Absolutely. and that kind of slow machine of, of games workshops rule development has now just sort of gone back over to pick up the loose ends on the factions that they'd already established much better than anyone else yeah and it might take a little bit longer to get onto the next thing yeah that's definitely the case so i'm i'm really happy about the corn book as well because uh, i'm really happy for them to release books without releasing models if that kind of brings uh models that exist in the range back into kind of contention back into yeah. consideration uh which is what uh the corn thing they've explicitly said we don't need any new corn models because there are loads of corn models they're great that range is awesome um so it's just about uh, giving them new ways to play on the battlefield giving you new reasons to buy units that perhaps weren't that interesting before mm. uh so it's and also like the production that is going to go into 
making a book it's just a different scale to producing a model range so yeah. the, the idea i don't feel as though they're taking away from any other factions by doing a corn book like this and i think it's I, the books are so good now and they're getting better and better that um one of the things I'd like to see them do is more actual just narrative in the books, like a page of like a short story, which is what they used to do back way back in the Warhammer fantasy days. Yeah. But apart from that, I think they're, they're just really comprehensive. They address every aspect of the game, no matter how you want to, how you want to play it, whether you want to do it competitively or whether you want to play it narratively as we mm. tend to. Um, so that I feel, I really feel like they were in, in their stride and they kind of know what Age of Sigmar is now and they're just fleshing, fleshing it out. It's great. It's interesting. So a lot of the most recent 40k stuff does like all the gathering storm stuff that is happening on that side of mm. of the hobby does have story right it has plot and, and named characters that are kind of not just archetypal but are you know are having some impact on 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 the world in which everyone's games take place mm. age of sigma like i agree with you that it would be nice to see some more specific storylines in most of those battle terms mm. but i do wonder if the decision to not include that in favor of maps and broader world building stuff is deliberate yeah because it feels like so one thing that hasn't happened yet is nothing has happened in the fiction that contradicts anything that we're doing right yeah and i wonder if maybe that's the direction they're taking with aos is that it's going to be more about world building and just leaving it a bit open yeah maybe um the rule is like every page has to give you a tool with which you can kind of add to your own hobby rather than introducing stuff that might in any way shut down stuff that you're trying to do in yeah. your stories but at the same time <coughs> excuse me uh, at the same time i think what i enjoyed most about those little story bits is that it doesn't have to be about carl franz killing a named character my favorite ones were just like here's a page of quite small text italics about a way watcher and what they do in their day-to-day life just that kind of the stuff that really gives you a, a, an avenue into your characters a way yeah. for you to kind of understand the world a little bit more and so one thing that's interesting having both books um there's more of that in disciples of zinch than there is in the stormcast book right and i wonder if that's partly because the stormcast book consolidates a lot of narrative that has already been in black library novels mm. and the books like the stormcast have been the heroes of almost every age of sigma book to yeah. date whereas there's maybe one or two books that deal with chaos champions at all and they're some of my favorite stuff yeah like the the disciples of each book does have exactly what you're talking about like those italic out mm. blocks of text that tell the story of like one of them's about um what it looks like what it feels like when an arcanite cult rises up within a within a town and all of these people suddenly gain their kind of like glamour forms where everyone's suddenly a ripped bird man because that's <laughs> the that is the end goal of any cult um but like you know they, they do do that experiential thing but maybe like a lot of the stormcast book spends time catching you up with like the realm gate wars which you know mm. which they have to do as well i suppose yeah so uh, maybe you know it'll be interesting to see how the corn book handles it because it feels like we've got a couple of in order to determine what the direction is we need to wait a couple of books right to see what the common theme is because mm. maybe stormcast are the exception in that they don't need that fiction because there's already been so much of it yeah yeah it's gonna be very interesting to kind of look at clues as to where the, the the universe is going from mm. here because um they've also announced another new faction for yeah. order long awaited long awaited uh always referred to on forums as the steamhead duarden they're actually lords of caradron caradron overlords caradron nearly i almost you almost it. did you almost got that <laughs> i got the caradron part that was the part i was sure i was going to get wrong and these are the new um they're they're mad uh kind of astronaut dwarfs steampunk whaling astronaut space dwarfs yes they they have their dwarven suits of armor 
and we'll get onto this, <laughs> but <laughs> some of that armor is hilarious. Um, they've got steamships, uh, they've got harpoon guns, they've, they've got suits that they, you know, pressurized that they never. Yeah, they've got leave. zeppelins. They've got zeppelins. They're, they've they're got cool. balloon based jetpacks. They do have balloon, probably the weakest part of the range, I would say, <laughs> from the uh, initial reveal. So, I mean, uh, I, I remember sending you this when they announced it because everyone thought this was coming because this was one of the rumors. Was absolutely. That, um, the other form of, because we would have the fire slayers, which are, naked angry dwarves with mm. um like gold burnished tattoos yeah they hammer runes magic runes of their own skin yeah smolder as they run which was sort battle. of <laughs> given that age of sigmar is basically taken the old fantasy setting and taken every element of it and made the the most extreme high fantasy version of that thing yes so fire slayers are what slayers became right. slayers used to just be topless dwarves that ran at people and screamed a lot mm. now they are hammering um they're basically 50% magma <laughs> right. and are hammering golden ingots into their own flesh and can tunnel through the earth. And they've befriended and loads of lizards. That and ride salamanders. Yeah. Right? Um, like, I love all this stuff because I really like the kind of ex- how how silly Age of Sigmar is. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, the Caradron Overlords take the aspect of the old dwarf, old dwarf factions, which was all about engineering and, um, you know, Gatling guns and that kind of thing and twists that into pressurized dwarven exosuits with golden beards. Yeah. And balloon jump packs and zeppelins. It's the, um, the best, well, the funniest model of the, uh, the range they've showed so far is like, one of those balloon guys. He's, he's been in a kind of mech suit and he's hovering above the earth on a, on a little balloon, quite a small balloon. That uh, looks quite silly. And his helmet not only has like an armored beard, it has like an armored top hat. Yeah, like it's it was modeled a, the whole thing. I remember, like, and the top hat's a cannon. Is Stick it? Yeah. Really? There's a cannon between the beard and the top oh hat. Oh my god. It's not clear whether the cannon is attached to the balloon or the top hat. Okay. But, like, that was on the one I, that was the one where I was like, is this silly? <laughs> is this too much? Yeah, exactly. I'm, is this interesting but too much? Yeah, I mean, interesting what just seems to be like pushing further and further into that territory. And I'm kind of delighted by it, really, because they've, they've, they're fucking committed to, to this road now <laughs> it feels like yeah like it, you know they upset old school fans by moving so far away from the kind of low fantasy medieval battle theme of the original even though there were obviously elements of old warhammer or old warhammer fantasy battle that yeah were miles away from just holy roman empire era medieval mm. you know not medieval but like early modern warfare with with guns and things but nonetheless to full-on like how do we make everything as insane as it can possibly be I mean, at this point, if they ever redo Bretonians, yeah, one of the deprecated factions, it basically has to be a midi- Imperial Knights from 40k, right? Mm. Because Imperial Knights are space Bretonians because mm. they are, you know, questing knights that happen to ride around in 60 foot mech suits, <laughs> which is at this point where that would also end up in Age of Sigma. <laughs> yeah, that'd be amazing. <laughs> um, but yeah, so like, I'm kind of all for it partly because like, I think one of the good things, but so there's, there's a cynical aspect of it, or at least a business minded aspect of it is Age of Sigmar marks. And we spoke about this a little bit last time, like Tolkien being absolutely left behind mm-hmm. in how a fantasy world is conceived. And there are, there are very strong business reasons to do that because ultimately it's a little bit weird that there are so many beloved fantasy series that are so vastly indebted to one piece of fiction. Yeah. From Warhammer, tr- traditional Warhammer to uh, Warcraft, everything Blizzard do with, with that. Like mm. there's so much stuff that wouldn't exist in the form that it exists in if, if Tolkien hadn't written those stories. And it feels like Games Workshop have gone through each of those ideas and gone, how do we make this 100% ours? 
and that also leads to dwarves with jetpacks. And balloons. <laughs> yeah. They're, uh, I'm not such a fan of the balloon dwarves because they do look quite silly, but the rest of it looks great to me. Um, I, I really like the idea of the airships. I'm really excited to see what the rules will be for those as well because yeah. they're quite different to anything else. They remind me a bit of um, like Dark Eldar skimmers where they, mm. um, I wonder if they'll, how they'll operate, whether they'll have any similarities to that stuff. There's um, there's an interesting, um, so there are now three different types of magic gold in, in yeah. Sigma. Yeah, Urgold, Sigmarite. Sigmarite. And whatever the hell ether they gold. Use. Ether gold, is that what it's yeah. called? <laughs> so the, this month has all been about adding the word ether to stuff. Right. Um, yeah, ether wings. Ether wings. Stormcast. Riding the wings etheric. Yeah, of course. Yep. Um, so ether gold is like gold but air, mm. whereas urgold is like gold but double gold. Uh, double gold, <laughs> nice. Um, and so that's the thing propelling all of these dwarven airships. They're full of magic gold oh, air. Oh, interesting. Which is, I mean, I you know, if you were going... Tolkien, but opposite land. Yeah. Then that's how you get there. Yeah, of course. Going from <laughs> mining underground to airships. Yeah. It's a, it's a cool thing. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm excited about that. I think it paves the way for increasingly batshit releases, which is yeah. what I'm Well, it ties into one of the other rumors, which is, um, and it's hinted at in one of the pieces of character and art that's already been shown, mm. is that the future of, um, sort of the elf one of the elven factions like the dark elf faction is going to be to pull more towards like the kind of corsairs and seafaring yeah, yeah. angle That's awesome. because um yeah like shadows over hammerhall shadows under hammerhall it's one of the two <laughs> um um includes two heroes that felt like they presaged this year's stuff right because it yeah. has the cogsmith which is an old dwarven hero model mm. but has a new context because he's a dwarf with a gatling gun shotgun thing and a you know metal visor very carriage and overlords themed. It also has the, uh, Black Ark Fleetmaster, which is a, um, you know, kind of dark elf pirate. Mm. And that's the rumored direction that they're going to take that faction in, which is going to be towards kind of like Cthulhu cultist, yeah, Kraken amazing. themes and stuff like that. And that fit seems like it might pair nicely with, there's an element of the carriage and overlords, which is all about these kind of like whaling ships with harpoons and things like that. Mm. And so if it ends up as magic sky dwarves versus, Lovecraft Corsair elves. sailors. That, yeah. yeah, that's fucking awesome, isn't it? Yeah, that's it's so great. Good. That's like, so good. So that kind of brings us on to the next thing that they've announced this week at Adepticon, which is the kind of board games miniatures thing in, in Chicago, mm. uh, which is Shadespire. Yes. Which is, or well, to give it its full name, Warhammer Underworlds Shadespire. Mm. Which suggests there's going to be like a series of... Yeah. This, like Underworlds games. Yes. Um... <laughs> Which is sort of a new um, competitive miniatures game based in the Age of Sigmar setting, but with its own specific rule set, rule set designed for organized play, which is the, the term used for sort of what happens in the X-Wing community, for example. So like yeah. regular, regular structured tournaments that can be played out in a day. So it's designed for sort of 40 minute sessions and, um, and so on. It's a sort of small scale skirmish game. Uh, on a hex-based grid for, you know, teams of, like, three to five models. So, like, really small scale. The reason it's sort of linked to the to the stuff we were just talking about is because the Shadespire setting is, is, I think, the first time they've shown anything of the realms of light and shadow. Right. Because it's supposed to be a sort of a realm or, like, a sub-realm, <laughs> mini-realm. I thought it was a death thing. It is. Oh, okay. But it's also not... It's not Realm of Death. That's the thing. It's Death, uh, but not okay. Realm of Death. Yeah, yeah. It's a city 
that Nagash, the the god of the dead, owns, I guess, has a has more holding in, yeah, <laughs> yeah, um, that is located between the realms of light and shadow. Okay, interesting. So it's all about mirrors and death and shades and stuff and but those are the two realms that we've seen nothing of so yeah far, absolutely. which is hence the link to the elves because everyone's assuming that the elves will be hmm. tied to the realms of light and shadow yeah um so yeah there is a there is a nagash sort of theme and therefore a death theme but the the, the factions that they've revealed for it so far are stormcast and corn so back to pretty aos standard stuff yeah but um i am real into this <laughs> I am totally on board for, because what it shows, I think, is that Games Workshop have noted that Fantasy Flight, who make X-Wing and Armada and um, Imperial Assault and Netrunner and a lot of other games, have had tremendous success with basically this format. Like, they don't have a skirmish game of quite this kind, but, um, you know, Games Workshop tends to make sprawling tabletop war, war games with a vast hobby investment, not small-scale games that make for good tournament play. Hmm. I mean, obviously, Age, Age of Sigma and 40k tournaments are a thing, but the infrastructure required to support them is vastly in excess of what's needed to support X-Wing yeah. or something like that. Hmm. And so this is, A, Games Workshop entering that space, but also um, a really specific kind of game design that I find really exciting. So it's... Um, Hex-based strategy with um, a deck-building aspect where you draw a hand of cards that factor into abilities and a sort of objective scoring system where you attempt to score objectives in a given round in order to win. Um, and then every game is designed to take place within the span of 40 minutes as a best of three. So you, sp you play three games in that time. And the thing I'm really into about this is it answers a few of the things that I've had a problem with in X-Wing recently we can maybe talk about this at a different time but like um i feel like objectives are a really good way of ensuring that you can have a meaningful diversity of like different types of usefulness mm. in any small scale game without objectives damage output becomes the defining factor of a, of a war game yeah. i think um but also having um both a card-based element, but also the way the dice work. It's all custom dice. It's not numbered dice. It's all designed to kind of borrow something from X-Wing, which is that there's a degree of, there's a degree of randomness in what can happen. But a lot of the game is going to be about like, um, creating situations where the dice are more likely to go your way based on sort of strategic positioning and that kind of thing. Right. So I'm, genuinely properly excited about it at this point yeah i think it's brilliant and they've already said that they're going to um plug in lots of there's gonna be loads of factions for it basically uh and i love i can't wait to see first of all it's going to be a, a good opportunity for them to potentially do some new death models mm. and uh, to clarify actually the models are i think they're they're snap fit and pre-colored on the plastic so the two factions the stormcast and the corn uh plastic sprues are uh red and sort of yellow respectively blue red oh, are they blue and blue yeah um so the idea is that you just pop them out, glue them together, or even just dry, put them together, dry fit them, and you could just play straight away. But still, the models are still great. Uh, yeah. So they're really dynamic, and if you want to, you can paint them. So it's it's just it's the most accessible. Uh, even though it's like a competitive play thing, it seems like a very success accessible entry point for people who like 
Yeah, they, okay. they did the same thing with the most recent edition of Blood Bowl, which right. came out last year, where it was all snap fit models that were either red or blue. Right. Um, which feels about as close as Games Workshop are going to get to pre-painted models. Yeah. Because that's what Fantasy Flight do, where everything's pre-painted and pre-assembled. Mm. Um, but, you know, I think that's a really good move for them generally, but also just moving into an area where more about buying expansions for a game that is like a living card game mm. rather than about building out uh, an army based on your own kind of whims, which is the the hobby side of it. And both both systems have strengths, but it's it's really nice to see mm. GW move in that direction. The other the other big thing about Shadespire is it's the first time they've shown a female Stormcast. It is, yeah. That's one of the three Stormcast models they've got in the set, isn't it? Yeah, uh, which is ace. Yeah, she's a just a female Liberator Prime, mm. basically, and and very easy to swap out, I imagine, for a Liberator Prime in an existing unit if you want to do that. Absolutely, yeah. There's loads of potential there for, yeah, um, yeah, definitely. And I think they've just about gotten it right as well, because this is a subject that I've kind of I cared about for a while, because I, um, um, I think it probably is a, might have been a picture of this with the last episode, but, um, I, my character in our Silver Tower, Warhammer Quest Silver Tower campaign is a Night Quester, Stormcast Night Quester, and a female Stormcast Night Quester, because I just did a very, very basic conversion that involved swapping out the helmet for a, uh, a bare head from uh, a third party uh, sort of miniatures bits maker um, with a collar made out of green stuff but I felt that you could make a, a good looking um, female stormcast model just by swapping the heads out because the body shapes like the stormcast armor is so huge and so abstract that you could really fit anybody in there, to be honest. Yeah. Like you didn't need Sisters of Battle style sort of armor, boob, corset, plate. <laughs> no. Um, and so one of the things that like the, the new female Stormcast is more feminine than a masculine Stormcast. And she does, there's a, there's an element of boob plate, but actually it's a lot, it's a lot more in line with the rest of the range than, for example, Sisters of Battle versus Space Marines. Mm. And I'm really glad that they moved in that direction because I was worried with what how they do. might take that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it seems like they're always going to do it at some point. Mm. Uh, I'm also glad that it's, there isn't just, uh, they haven't just said, oh, here, here are the female units. Like, uh, they haven't said, you know, they haven't done a Sisters of Science where the only way you can have women in the Stormcast Army is to have the dedicated unit of women. They've yeah. actually gone for, oh, she's a liberator. Like, you know, uh, any Stormcast could be anyone, really. Yeah. It's, it's Sigma picks everyone from the realms based on their hatred of chaos and mm. nothing more. Uh, yeah, so. which was already in the fiction. Yes. And actually is more explicitly the case in the latest book, which we were just talking about, right? Mm. Like the new book is even... Like, I, I wonder if they've noticed that there's demand for this. Because traditionally, I feel like, you know, uh, you know, <coughs> people love the Sisters of Battle range now. Mm. But when it came out, it was famously unsuccessful. Very well. yeah, yeah. yeah. So, you know, maybe they were a bit from a pure business sense a bit shy about having you know you know diverse armies in that particular way but it feels like now they've sort of seen that there's demand for this that the sort of you know the landscape of hobby stuff has changed and that mm. you know being able like one of the nice things about the way the stormcast are designed is, is yeah the armor is so abstract that even though the bodies are kind of physically masculine there's really no saying who's inside those bodies anyway those like that armor anyway because the armor is so big yeah that um you know, just the scale of it in terms of like size of the size of the helmets relative to the bodies means that any normal proportioned human being, mm. even a big muscular person has to be much smaller than their armor they're in. So, um, you can already say if you decide that your liberators are, you know, there's a whole bunch, you know, there's female and male liberators in your unit. You can basically already do that. That's true. 
but having these kind of specific models is also kind of helpful. Yeah. So it's just a cool thing they're doing. It's, it's cool. And it's really dynamic pose on her as well. Like it's really, uh, it looks great. In fact, all the, all the models in that Chase Bar box, I want to paint them all of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but the Stormcast are great because I know I'll be able to take those models and put them in my army. Uh, I could use the, the main kind of champion is the box, the guy in the box basically would be a really good kind of Night Quester. Yeah. Replacement. Or an, um, Errant Quester. Or an Errant Quester, yeah. Uh, so, I mean, the possibilities there for it to feed back into the main, uh, army hobby is, is, is good. I'm just really excited about having that format for play as well, because while, like, <clears throat> I really enjoy playing Age of Sigmar, the time investment required and the space required, including scenery and, and other mm. things, it's, it's always an investment to get a game. It's something we have to really plan. Mm. Whereas in the other half of my kind of hobby life, I can go to a club once a week and play three games of X-Wing. Right. Which is something you absolutely can't do no. in almost any way that we currently play. Even Silver Tower, which is a dungeon crawler, co-op dungeon crawler, takes setting up and an evening for us to have a proper session. Yeah. Whereas the idea is like if, if we both pick up Shades by sets and we can use some of our existing models or even, you know, the models are useful in our other hobby, hmm. that's something we can get a game in in an hour before doing something else then that's yeah it's great you know genuinely appealing also like i love i love systems that are about um managing a certain amount of randomness alongside a lot of sort of strategic decision making which is what makes x-wings so good um there's a lot of that in, in age of sigma but age of sigma is just a lot more complicated and so the idea of having it be be a little bit more um um stripped down to kind of traditional kind of you know units on a hex grid type strategic decision making is is really appealing mm. like one of the examples of how that works in the game is um but you have attack and defense dice but attack dice and defense dice both have an icon on them that means basically like an assist so if your character has another character near them assists count as successes otherwise they're failures right so like one of the mechanics so essentially um the odds of getting a successful role are higher based on the formation that you're moving your characters around mm, in. Interesting. But that plays off against the need to split up to capture objectives and that kind of thing. Yeah. And that, those are just the, the fundamental building blocks of an interesting strategic system. Yeah, you can already see me. that, you know, a Stormcast um, warband with three characters versus a corner with five or six. Like, again, they're going to be, you immediately see that corner are going to be good objective cappers, but not necessarily strong in combat. And yeah. You can already see the the asymmetry playing out there in interesting ways yeah so i'm genuinely like it's very like i, I don't know how or when we're going to see more from that because it feels like it's a, mm. it's a while off still yeah it seems i mean they were playing it uh when they when they showed it the first time i think people who were there were able to just sit yeah. and play a game of it so it, it exists you know it just, but they say they suggested later this year so one of the interesting things is as well they specified that it was a product of the core design team at games workshop mm. not the um standalone games design team to yeah. make things like um blood ball i believe in okay. and like the the horus heresy games and that kind of thing mm. so they're obviously taking this quite seriously and that's not a surprise because you know one of the surprising things about miniatures gaming generally over the last couple of years has been that x-wing is now the biggest miniatures game in the world which is kind of nuts given, yeah given now, really. given the run-up that warhammer had yeah to be toppled by something that's only been around for four years is you know so i think they've obviously seen the need to move into mm. this particular territory but you know it'd be great it'd be great to see if it could bridge that gap with like all the people like so i you know i i'm part of a big community of, of x-wing players in bristol but nobody plays any warhammer game mm apart from me really a couple of people play blood bowl 
But again, it's in that category, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think Shadespear is probably best understood as like, weirdly, given that Blood Bowl is fighting but football, Shadespear looks like it's shaping up to be football but fighting, right? You know what I mean? Like it's sort mm. of, it moves back towards the core fantasy of that setting, but with a much more rigid set of rules. Not unlike something like Mordheim or Necromunder, where it's still just a stripped down version of that. Yeah. Higher level war game. Yeah, really excited about it. It's going to be great and nice surprise as well. Yeah, yeah, genuinely. Yeah, so I'm properly excited for that because I need more projects. <laughs> Don't we all? So the other thing that's come out of Adepticon is, <clears throat> and we did say this was going to be a big new section, is the first inklings of what 40K's next edition is oh, going to yeah. be like. Hmm. And that's real interesting because I think they probably predict a riot if they say, we're going to take loads of lessons from Major Sigma. Yeah. But they're taking loads of lessons from Major Sigma. <laughs> <laughs> They did a very good, uh, a funny video where they implied that they were going to move to square bases for, uh, yeah, for Warhammer 40,000. Which is hilarious, but possibly too soon for some people. <laughs> too soon, yeah. Uh, no, this is really exciting. They're, they're talking about the three ways to play, um, which is the narrative open and, uh, match play is what they're referred to in Age Sigma, which is basically how competitive you want to be, how kind of story focused you want to be. Uh, and they're going to put that into Warhammer 40k, which is great because that universe is fucking awesome. And the stuff they're doing story-wise with that universe right now is crazy interesting and yeah, yeah. Really exciting. I want to play narrative play 40k, really. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, they've just brought back a, one of the Primarchs, one of the Emperor's children. Is, is Robot. Robot Gulliman, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> slight diversion here, but um, play Mass Effect. I've, I've called my rider Reboot Rider. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, Isn't it Rebooté? Rebooté Rider. <laughs> I don't know how you pronounce Reboot. No. Um, Robert? Let's say Robot. Yeah. <laughs> I like Robot. Uh, he's back. He's got a model and uh, he's... He's woken up, he's thawed, uh, however, it ha- however it happened, and he's looked at the Imperium and gone, what the fuck happened to this, <laughs> exactly. uh, to this civilization? Because w- when I was around with my dad, the Emperor, we had like an actual utopian vision for how humanity was going to play out, and it did not involve dreadnoughts <laughs> and just, you know, endless kill squadrons, you know, destroying, uh, entire planets. Just, for, you know. It's funny what happens, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you walk out for 10,000 years, come back and everything's on fire. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot like the episode of Community. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, <laughs> the, 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 one. the chaos theory one. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's, it's really exciting. And they, they've brought back some of the coolest characters in that fiction, like Cypher is just one, you know, badass idea. random fact my first ever online video games handle was mm. cypher as a because i loved cypher, cypher the dark, dark angel so much that's yeah. awesome yeah it's not awesome well, i mean it uh, was 2000 and within a certain one. context yeah <laughs> <laughs> and then they give a context uh so yeah the one of the universe is brilliant and the races are, are so interesting like the eldar are really interesting to me eldari now as oh, yeah part, of as course a, they've changed the deep tolkienization eldar is a tolkien word again ah, right. so yeah it's so, one of those are, so yeah but they're they're kind of all death wizards now yep. yeah yeah we're all death wizards now uh yeah and just the Tau and the Orcs, the way, those factors are brilliant. And the idea of actually using the system to tell stories rather than play out kind of super hardcore simulation, you know, ooh, what if this weapon would this penetrate the armor of this type of tank if it was fired at a certain angle? Um, you know, that sort of stuff is, you know, interesting to an extent, but it's not really what I'm interested in from a, yeah, yeah, game, totally. from a, from a war game. Because particularly because the strength of the Age of Sigma system is even though, yeah, technically there's three ways to play, there's basically a lot of space to 
determine your own path within that system. Because, mm. like, we've never played narrative or match play Age of Sigma. We've no, always done kind of both. Yeah, for sure. Like, we've always used some of the aspects of match play to determine how best to play some of the narrative stuff, <laughs> right? Um, and that's worked really well for us. And that's the sort of flexibility that I think most war games should have, really. Yeah. yeah. Um, the other things they've discussed is bringing back things like movement values, making leadership mean something with a system that sounds quite a lot like Battleshock. Right. From Age of Sigma. Yeah. So, um, it'll be interesting to see how people react to that. Cause from my point of view, as somebody who, yeah, like loves the 40k setting, but basically hates the rules, hmm. I'm in on this, right? Like, right. I, I want them <laughs> to take the kind of slash and burn approach to fixing that game. Hmm. I appreciate that that's not how everyone's going to feel about it, but like, I don't have any investment in the rules as they currently stand, no. apart from the fact that they're so opaque that it makes it not fun to pick up. Yeah, hopefully that it'll be interesting to see to what extent um, they choose to keep it complicated to an extent. I, I think it's, it's a, maybe they like it being their slightly more serious war game, mm. and maybe that it will still have that, even if, even though it will soften a bit. Um, but I, I think the I mean the rumors are for a new edition this year. It's a hugely exciting opportunity to uh, not uh, to reboot the rule set, but also reboot the kind of the purpose of it, and also the fiction, which has been kind of quite static in terms of the imperium at least yeah since i i remember encountering it yeah like, the imperium of man has always been the same and this is the first time they've really started to change it and actually imply that this could be you know f uh fracture within the imperium between more idealistic space marine factions and other factions yeah when you've got a uh, space marine primarch returning and saying it would have been better if horus had won <laughs> right yeah yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. harsh words <laughs> um yeah so yeah it is genuinely exciting like i, I doubt they will do like, i mean because in, in a sense fantasy battle had the same problem right which mm. is that nothing ever really nothing changed change. yeah um and their solution to that was to change literally fucking everything <laughs> Um, to fast forward a billion years mm. to a realm of space dragons, which obviously wasn't what everyone was looking for. I doubt, I very much doubt 40k will change that much. No, no, no. But it would still be an epochal change simply to have the factions shift around a little bit yeah. or to have, to, to loosen up the factions, which is something I'd love them to do. Mm. Like it, it feels like, you know, the current, um, I think one of the things that I really like about Age of Sigmar is that rather than tell you you must build a faction in a particular way it offers you bonuses for doing it in that way but that is optional so if you you know if i stick to zinch i massively benefit from all of the zinch specific mechanics but there is nothing in the rules that says i can't throw in whatever the fuck i want if i want to throw in a corn champion into my zinch army i can i lose some benefits but i gain the benefit of having that character around yeah and the thing that I found, you know, looking at the stuff, the 40k stuff that I do have, like, well, not 40k, the 30k stuff that I have, realizing that I'm, like, several boxes and X number of pounds away from having a valid army because of the requirements, yeah. just the basic requirements of building an army, hmm. is a bit of a shit feeling. Right. Because, it, and it reminds me of the old days, right? Like, when I was a teenager mm. and you kind of knew that, like, well, I want this, but in order to be able to field this in my army, I need to have these things. Hmm. And... I don't think any game is really well served by that. Like you can find more interesting ways of, of incentivizing thematic or balanced army construction without really holding people to specific things. Yeah. I mean, AOS has battle line, which is how they do it. Uh, and I think 
you kind of want armies to look like armies to an extent. You, you don't yeah. necessarily want them to just be five hero characters that are really expensive. But you can do that. Um, you used to be able to do that um, with death. People used to just roll with Nagash and his lieutenants, and that would pretty much be the army. Yeah. And uh, it's, I don't know. I mean, that doesn't seem exciting to me. I like seeing lots of models down. Uh, I think I like the variety, right? So, like, one thing that I'm genuinely thinking about, like, and I've got so many projects on at the moment that I don't need another one, but... <laughs> If I do a 40k army one day, I'm not necessarily thinking that I'll actually do Zinch, even though it makes sense because I've already got so many demons that yeah. I can use them, them straight away. I think I'd like to do Imperial Knights, mm-hmm. like exclusively Imperial Knights. Yeah, there's, there's huge walkers. Like, yeah. And where in a thousand points might be just be three models. Yeah. Um, because they're not going to be amazing at objectives and stuff, but competitive play doesn't really bother me. Like, I like the idea of playing something completely different mm. to the horde stuff that I'm doing at the moment, where it's like, I'm just going to have three super important units and i love the fiction around them and stuff like that so it kind of fits for me yeah they're really cool and at the moment you can do that but it requires all of the the bolted on rules that have been implemented to allow like a knight mana pool to be a thing right whereas i like the idea of a game sort of supporting that by default actually i don't have a problem with an army being made up of just heroes Hmm. if the point system ensures that that's relatively balanced because that's kind of interesting right like you know we'll get to this when we talk about the game we played today but a bunch of heroes versus the world can be an interesting encounter that operates differently to two lines of rank and file soldiers meeting each other right like the game systems support that stuff yeah so i think loosening it up to allow that to be just the way the game works is something that i'd really support yeah that's awesome it's exciting times it's going to be just an insane year for Games Workshop stuff. It's just crazy how much they've queued up. Yeah, and, you know, the company's fortunes have turned around a lot as well, which mm. is interesting. Like, I wonder if the fact that Age of Sigma has ultimately been, like, a pretty big business success by all accounts has mm. kind of made them more confident when it comes to applying similar changes to 40K. Mm. Because they couldn't have really... I don't know if you could have anticipated a, a more hostile kind of backlash against the no. way fantasy battle changed it went as bad badly as it could have gone probably yeah and yet it was a huge success yeah it's, t- it's taken a while for them to turn it around but uh, i mean i can't imagine them selling a huge amount of models necessarily in the first year mm. um, but the second year with the sylvaneth with the new battle tomes the general handbook feels like that was pretty much the moment where people word of mouth started to spread that you know actually it's not a pretty good game actually yeah and also it brought people back and that's the crucial yeah. thing right it brought you and i yeah for sure. so yeah for sure. Uh, like, I don't think either of us would have returned for a game of, of 8th edition fantasy's complexity. No, I would have painted, I would have painted a unit and a model for nostalgia's sake, and then that would have been the end of it. We would never have played it. Yeah. Yeah. Like, um, and, you know, so I think there's mileage there, which is not to say that there's not, you know, not valid things to be concerned about if the game does get a lot simpler. But I think, honestly, I think one thing about Age of Sigmar as well is like, from a strategic point of view, it's, it's not a simple game. Mm. The decisions you have to make have real consequences and will, yeah you know we'll get to that but it's kind of interesting yeah it's an interesting tactical game i think like Mm. positional is a a very positional game it's about where your guys are areas of influence they have over the board yeah which is uh, exactly what you want from a you know war game it's just that those things are expressed through a slightly simpler rule set yeah you don't need to be wheeling blocks and worrying about rank bonuses and flank charges or anything like that you know that's that's the the tedious layer that is gone Well, Mm. well i personally found tedious anyway because you know the historical expectation is it's just nonsense in Age of Sigma. Like, yeah, the idea that there'd be two ranks of Stormcast and they get charged in the flank, like they don't care. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's a big gold Superman. Yeah, you can deal exactly. with it. And, and you know, 
from an aesthetic point of view, I totally get people being not happy with that the direction, that being the direction that fantasy's taken. Yeah. But given that it is taking it, I think they built a good, good game around that idea of, yeah, like we were saying, like, how do you take, how do you take dwarves with rifles and turn them into, like, top hat wearing robot steam men? Well, there it is. There it is. <laughs> yep. So that's basically it for, for news from, from Games Workshop this month hmm. I figure this is the the clean segue into our own progress this month because it's kind of i guess as we do this podcast more regularly um we will have an actual month of experience to draw on whereas at this point we've got closer to two yeah lots of things happen um so what's you know you and i've played i guess we played like one game in the space between pods other than the one we played today yeah what else has defined your month-ish in hobby stuff hobby wise my main mission has been doing my celestial prime uh who which i got for christmas and uh i've been kind of looking at warily ever since mm. and uh, finally built it and painted it up and did it all properly did sub assemblies and then brought them all together at the end it's still not quite finished but it's pretty much 90 percent of the way there and uh that was probably the most satisfying thing i've done in the hobby since i started i would say since the very beginning since the very beginning um yeah. uh, it's such a beautiful model and so to clarify this is a big gold man in an orrery of <laughs> yeah. swirling space magic absolutely he's he's, he's a I, I call him the christmas tree in my head because he's basically he looks like a christmas tree he's a big spiraling kind of uh maelstrom of energy on which there's this guy with huge wings on top with a a hammer, the hammer, the warhammer. The, the whole the whole range is named after uh, the warhammer. He has it. He's holding it. And on his other hand, he's got a, a scepter that's kind of burning and can bring down meteors. Uh, really just beautiful centerpiece model. Uh, not just like, not the biggest one, but for the Stormcast, just a, a perfect kind of emblematic uh, embodiment of their whole ideal of this kind of uh, faceless, like automaton, uh you know beacon of justice uh with weird magic shit uh, and it's it's been real pleasure to bring it together and to realize it and it's turned out quite well so he's sitting in the middle of my army on my shelf now and it almost just him being there makes the rest of the army look better mm. having a centerpiece really just sets off the rest of the troops and gives them a kind of almost a purpose or something to rally around yeah so i uh, just sort of wander over there and look at it all the time because <laughs> the whole thing just the whole uh the whole effect is just fantastic because you've um really like doubled down a lot on the stormcast this last month right like yeah i think the the news of the new battle tome and the new uh the new range uh, and i'm really happy with the ones i've done so far i i, I I was kind of veering. I was thinking of going to Realm of Death Sylvaneth, which is a project I wanted to do at some point and properly concept out and, you know, really yeah. do those conversions. Uh, and actually, uh, I visited Salt Mines in Krakow recently and I bought a massive bag of crystal salt, which I will use to base my Realm of Death Sylvaneth. <laughs> so there'll be these kind of like pale, cloudy crystals and there'll be a kind of crystal desert they're on. Oh, nice. But just, um, don't, if you lick them, they will, uh, they'll, they'll be quite nice. <laughs> they'll taste good <laughs> as well. It's an added bonus. Uh, but no, I decided instead to double down on the, on the Stormcast because I love the new models. The, the Vanguard models are badass. Like mm. they're kind of, uh, they've got these one-handed crossbows and axes and awesome capes and the new kind of chicken riders, uh, look incredible. They've got an incredible sense of motion and momentum. Um, and having the prime is just kind of, 
cemented like I, I really love the stormcast now and just mm. really into my army and love the way they look and the way they play and feel quite emotionally connected to them yeah, quite yeah proud of them it feels like your um realm of death sylvaneth is a bit like my realm of metal corn yeah in that it started off as like this might take over my main bro oh no hang on <laughs> yeah yeah the moment the new lord of change came out it was just like uh i'm doing this absolutely yeah so i think so uh kind of arcs with the game have coincided with games workshops release is Mm. very fortuitously really because i've I've always gonna be well served with um stormcast but they just brought out that book for you and for yeah for zinch so they've i think that's focused us both onto our respective armies and there's a kind of interesting um escalating war between them as well so the idea of uh, as we add new units it's part of this back and forth between these two forces that have been fighting for centuries and that's a really cool story to tell as well yeah that's um you know so the, the game we played that um the penultimate game we played kevin now played one since was so given on the last episode we talked about the game where you totally destroyed me in a turn and a half. Oh yeah, that's um, so that was yeah that brutal was when we played <laughs> when we played um, one of the new uh, Zinch scenarios from the from the Zinch book. Uh, we played the other one subsequently mm. at um, our local games workshop, and you totally destroyed me again. Yeah, I, I was surprised it was a Zinch scenario because it was very very yeah. disadvantageous to them. It is so the, interestingly the both of the scenarios in the Disciples of Zinch book press the. F- both sides together really quickly yeah they involve a lot of um the factions starting in, in proximity to each other that you wouldn't even normally do if you were playing one of the generic match play scenarios no and that's um wholly disadvantageous <laughs> to the particular type of zinc army i have yeah, yeah. which really loves shooting but sees combat as a way of slowing you down mm. while i get out of the way so i can shoot you some more like it's never you know zinc now has some kind of chunky combat options but i don't have them painted yet so yeah. you know there's that but like um but that particular game felt like the sort of one of the moments where the kind of particular type of story, which as you say is about escalation, is started to click into mm. place about our two factions. Because your Stormcast keep winning, but like something goes quite badly wrong for them in every battle. Yeah, they get quite mangled. Yeah. There's certain individuals over and over again. Yeah, so specifically your Lord Celestin has now had a couple of rough run-ins. He has. I mean, we talked last month about how... His very first encounter was each was to get his head blown off by flamers, flamers, um, and a Dracoth reincarnate now, so the Dracoth and him can come back over and over again. And this time, he very pompously uh, charged into quite a meek and normally not terribly effective chaos sorcerer uh, lord. Sorcerer lord. So it's not as each what used to be the Zinch, Zinch sorcerer lord is now a fate master. It's an actual chaos sorcerer lord because the buff is really good yeah um but zinch marked so mm. i think i the model was in the last pod i think actually I yeah off. so my converted zinch sorcerer who's also my general now because he's kind of the main character of my zinch host he's the corrupter the great kind of he's the he's the he's the um conductor slash musician responsible for dooming an entire civilization by playing the bad note that the makes bad. everyone everyone turn into a gribbly birdman yeah he's a uh... <laughs> his solo continues yeah exactly uh, and uh so i pretty much wiped most of the zinch off the table because i was able to deploy like a foot away from you and you know yeah. put my full also i had one of the most spectacularly poor shooting phases it's yeah. possible to have and nothing died pretty nothing much yeah I, like we've discovered that most of my army shooting at one unit of liberators will do one wound yeah pretty much on average but i didn't even do that like no I, nothing happened. the 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 zinch battle line lined up everything 
unleashed a torrent of magical flame and literally it nothing happened. Yeah, yeah it bounced off them. And then I got, I think you got a double turn after that. And yeah, that was yeah. the sort of... Yeah, it was unfortunate. Um, but yeah, it was towards the end of the battle. My general just charged your general. And I was like, okay, I'll just wipe him out then. Um, because, yeah, to clarify, that's a Lord Salaston on Dracoth yeah, versus enormous... a individual Chaos Sorcerer Lord. Yeah, so you've got like a seven, eight foot tall uh, Stormcast Lord Celestin, like one of they they have personal chats with Sigmar and his kingdom all the time. They're that important. Like they're the most powerful of the Stormcast, um, apart from the Prime, riding uh, a Star Lizard that can breathe lightning uh, and that can just rip a bloodthirster in half if it's you know rolls a lot of sixes. And uh, so coming in on this versus kind of, a man with a staff a holding a, a what might be a green fireball, or as people have pointed out, might also be a cabbage, <laughs> right? <laughs> cabbage wielding musician uh, and. Uh, he got decapitated. Yeah, so this is a really lovely use of the mechanics. So um I knew I was lost by this point. Um but I always tend to like try and think about how to play in a narrative way anyway, but like mm. or at least a thematic way. But I knew I had nothing to lose because I'd basically already lost the game because the first time was so devastating again. Yeah. But um and genuinely this is my favourite thing that's happened in a game, I guess probably in the last month and a half, but I because I did get the turn sort of the return of a combat my half of a combat phase with a one wound remaining chaos sorcerer lord and then the guarantee of a turn next turn yeah through expending seven destiny dice <laughs> out of a total pool of nine so zinch and we covered this last week i think but zinch rolls nine dice at the start of the game and whatever those results are you put them to one side and then at any point when you're rolling dice for the rest of the game, you can swap in what would have been your dice roll hmm. for a destiny dice, which is reflects the fact that Zinch is like the master of fate and, and magic and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, by expending seven different destiny dice, I could orchestrate a situation where my melee combat, um, spell casting and ranged combat guaranteed enough damage to kill your Lord Celestin from full health before it could attack again. Yes. As this Chaos Sorcerer Lord <laughs> just fucking hulks out. Yeah. I mean, I can only imagine he goes like Super Saiyan or something. Yeah. Glows and the general looks into his eyes and sees just roars each yeah. behind it, you know. And, and this is such a lovely character. Like, so this is one of the nice things about the game where this is totally fed into that ongoing story because mm-hmm. now that idea of escalation is you know zinch and and well and specifically the lord of change that i believe is being behind my army and is on his way as soon as he kind of crosses my painting table yeah um acts through all of these kind of mortal servants mm. and this lord celestin has won a couple of battles in a row maybe feels quite confident going up against yeah he was definitely quite smug yeah and when he comes to encounter this puny looking sorcerer he actually doesn't encounter that sorcerer suddenly mm. i had this idea that his that sorcerer's willpower just vanished all of a sudden yeah as he became purely an avatar for this lord of change acting through him mm. um and so it's just a little even though i had to expend seven destiny dice to do it it was just a little glimpse of what's coming and it's such a nice character beat for that reason that like he's definitely, sort of definitely like it's kind of terrifying oh shit moment where i mean and, and eventually like your lord salaston died but your lord veritan who's the witch hunter mm. came to charging in after him and resolutely saw off that chaos sorcerer did, lord yeah, who at that point was completely spent had nothing else to give but he probably just like snapped back to his senses and yeah. he's like how the hell what what did i just happened? do yeah. yeah and of course like it must be a rapturous moment for him to actually kind of become a, uh, a vessel for siege in that way as someone who's practiced his arts yeah, yeah. for centuries 
And I have this other character beat with him that he's practiced the, the arts for centuries, but has been denied the proper transformation. Mm, like so he's been denied or, de- or demon prince. Right. Like he's been denied that kind of, mm. you know, that transformation. He's the, the conductor, not the orchestra. So like mm. the Zangor who are lesser than him have still had the transformation and the gift of that. And he hasn't, mm. but he's had this one kind of ephoric moment. moment. Yeah. Of incinerating a big gold man. <laughs> um, but it was such a, like, it required like just, you know, Destiny Dice going down to guarantee a certain amount of mortal wounds just to get that damage through. Mm. But it was such a cool thing that it came off. Cause you still trounced me in that game. Yeah. But it was, it was, it was good. It was, um, that's what's really kind of defined, like the relationship between my general and your army has been the kind of defining thread for both of the forces. I think, mm. like even as um, talked about last month, like my uh, stormcast of law hunters, vizier, they're there to kind of secure knowledge and to protect knowledge that would be useful to Sigma, um, and that for that reason, perhaps Siege is taking an interest in them yeah. as being potentially corruptible more so than your average kind of celestial vindicators who just mindlessly kill. Yeah, I mean, the way, you know, we talked about this earlier, but like all beings in, in that fiction are closer to one chaos god or another. Mm. It's not about being <laughs> actively corrupted at first necessarily, but like if you are an honorable warrior who, you know, prides themselves on victory in combat, then you are naturally hewing closer to corn, whether you like it or not. Mm. You know, if you, if you grow a beautiful garden, you're hewing closer to Nurgle, whether <laughs> you like it or not. Yeah. If you like a glass of wine at six o'clock with your episode of Grand Designs. <laughs> You're well, hewing closer to Slanesh. Yeah. <laughs> like, um, it always starts small things. It is, it starts small, but like, um, but your, your Stormcast hew closer to Zinch, basically, yes. in terms of their kind of alignment Absolutely, and interest. Yeah. And it's interesting because, uh, the way the fiction has gone for the Stormcast is that they are being changed by the realms. And the idea is that my, uh, this faction that has been fighting for centuries is also being changed in that way. Yeah. And I kind of, I want to reflect that visually eventually, and maybe kind of start attaching scrolls to their armor and, you know, giving them that slightly, not Zinch, overtly Zinchin, but just kind of uh, showing a love of obsession with knowledge, obsession with scrolls. And yeah. Tell you what, collecting Zinch gives me a bit box full of scrolls. So if <laughs> oh, you yeah. want some, I'll oh, yeah, give you some scrolls. That would <laughs> you also, might have to clip some Zinch symbols off them. That, that would be amazing because you'd be literally you'd, giving you'd be you physically co- corrupting my army with <laughs> yeah. your bits box, which uh, that, that's always too good. I love yeah. that idea. Um, which would be great. I, I really want to, uh, I, I want to buy some more Liberators who, I, I love the Liberators. They're the Stormcast's basic unit. They've got a big shield and a big hammer. Um, I want to buy a box of those and properly develop the, the Law Hunters of Azir as a, what they should look like, basically. They, they look a lot like the Hammers of Sigma because that's how it all started. But properly getting, getting the scrolls and loads of stuff. Maybe some yeah, I see your army is like part of the Hammers of Sigma, but like a different chamber. That yeah, absolutely. Operates who, in who it's specialized way. and, you know, under the command of Tantris, which is my general, like they've become this other thing now. Yeah. Um, which is rad. So the, the other side of it is that, um, given that that interest in your general <coughs> started with that first battle, which we decided was during that first invasion at the beginning of the Age of Sigma. <laughs> Um, his death was the, you know, my, at least my gaunt summoner is probably my Lord of Change's first experience of Stormcast reincarnation and, and oh, yeah. seeing the bolt go back to his ear and that kind of thing. Um, what that sort of fed back down to. And one of the ways that I can keep spinning all of these losses into feeling a little bit like victories in some ways mm. is, um, exposing your Lord Celestant to the sort of energies of Zinch is the ongoing mission yeah yeah and so and that takes the form of this this song right like this Mm. eternal piece of shifting music and so my kind of 
general sorcerer who has been denied this kind of transcendental moment that he's seen other people receive through his own craft mm. um what i the way i'm thinking about it at the moment is that he is his task really is to kind of essentially play all 999 verses of this piece of transcendental music mm. to your general as completing his yeah his, undermining and corrupting him i've deliberately set a big number involving a lot of nine <laughs> nine is nine yeah, is inches number. but like it's a, a, partly because we might never get there but the idea is that like it's the sort of like ev with every death hmm. zinch is pulling something from that right like either either it's because your general is being exposed to this stuff more and more and more or because every time he goes back to his ear something is changed or something is lost or you know like you know ultimately that um reforging is a process of change yeah and it all mm. ties back right yeah so that's i really like that idea it's fiction because maybe it doesn't go anywhere and i do anything with it but it, i like that as a kind of motivator it's a good hick. Uh -oh, hook there i think yeah and and it kind of makes me imagine what a kind of uh as each corrupted version of my general would even look like yeah. so if you're going to do like a version as a model that could be like it, it wouldn't necessarily have a dracoth but you could put him on some sort of mount and then also give you know have him in stormcast armor but with covered in the delivery of zinch the symbols of zinch and, yeah yeah and change his colors and stuff it could, it could be a, a really awesome well, version. but maybe he never even gets maybe that there happens. but like yeah, yeah but hence 999 <laughs> yes. so far we're on like <laughs> four yeah <laughs> um yeah so that was a really cool moment even though yeah another zinch is yet to win <laughs> yet to win no, in the traditional sense but um all those powerful units are still to be built and i've got like loads of units coming so i've got a whole vanguard force yeah. in the post well, we, star trek we spoke <laughs> jesus we, we've spoken about this already but like we see the the prime which you've been working on yeah. coming down as soon as the lord of change appears that's right so i'm uh, not going to use the prime in any battles like that's going to be the first time the prime appears it's the first time i'm ever going to use them will be when the lord of change appears then the prime is going to be in that army that's going to be his entry into the yeah. like the story into everything it's cool like this is what we're talking about like having these different ways to play it's like that's a cool yeah. moment yeah. right like, and so it's worth not just playing with it like it's worth kind of denying myself you know the fun of playing with that model just for the story beat of suddenly having this amazing kind of powerful character to play with yeah to go head to head with your most powerful unit as well exciting good stuff yeah i can't yeah. wait for that so um i've had a bit of a weird month in a way it's sort of a shame that like this is the two months between our first and second episode for me because mm. um i had a spectacularly busy for other reasons couple of months basically uh, between getting ready to leave my day job to go freelance and leaving my day job to go freelance left mm. me with much less time for hobby than i thought i would have <coughs> mm. so um the vast majority of my hobby time has actually been spent on the same tactical squad of thousand suns 30k era thousand suns for the burning of prospero game that i was working on last time mm. and as of the time this podcast goes up i think they'll finally be done i'm now at the decals and basing stage nice and like i'm happy with how they've turned out they've taken me a lot longer than i hoped they would um but my thousand sons have always been a side project like i really like them like i love the fiction but like i'm i've still got that giant pile of zangor to build and mm. i'm excited to bring them in yeah are you are you uh do you have any trepidation about doing the zangor given that it's such a big job not really because actually um i 
I've settled on what the color scheme is going to be and how I'm going to tie them into stuff I've already done, make them my own, that kind of thing. Um, I know that I'm going to use the Fang, which is a kind of gray-blue spray. Well, it's a gray-blue shade, and they do a spray of it as the base coat, as a primer, because I know how I want to do them, which will be a little bit more efficient than the Zangori did from the Silver Tower box. Mm. They're incredibly ornate models, but actually, one thing I've, you know... One thing I've learned is that I actually quite like batch painting as long as I don't have to repeat myself too much in terms of going back to stages I've already done. Okay. So all of that, that big block of 20 Zangor I'm going to build, I'm going to do in one massive go and it'll take a while, but I'm okay with doing the same thing over and over again for 20 models in a row as long as I don't then have to do it for another 20 having done a bunch of other things. So that's just a little bit of personal kind of understanding how my own discipline works. So kind of not it's still a lot like i've still got 27 zangor to get through before i've done the whole set and there's no way it's not going to take a while but also like they are you know cool expressive models and they're quite interesting to paint because it's all kind of interesting surfaces yeah and i've learned a lot like i've learned a lot about how to do um trim like gold trim when I first did my original set of Zangor for the Silver Tower box, I thought it made sense to paint all of the trim first and then paint the interiors of the armor after that. No, hang on, to do it the other way around. To to paint all the interior of the armor first and then right. the trim. Yeah, yeah. And actually that's the worst way of doing yeah, it. Yeah, definitely. Um it you know, it looked good when you finished it, but it it exposes you to a lot more risk and it requires you to be a lot more careful while doing the trim. Mm. And I've learned that lesson since. So is it going to be easy? No, because they are extremely ornate models for what are essentially horde units. But I'm less nervous about it than I was. I guess I say that now. Experience <laughs> under your belt as well. Maybe yeah. if you'd have, this has been one of the first things you'd have attempted in RB, it would have been, uh, you know, put you off. <laughs> yeah. Like I don't think, I don't think Zinch Mortals makes for a particularly, or at least the, you know, dedicated Zango stuff makes for a particularly inviting army. Like you were saying this earlier, where we were looking through the models and it's mm. like, shit, if this is your first army, you're basically, yeah, you're yeah, never going to paint these. Hard mode, yeah. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing how they look when they're all done and everything else. And actually, like, I've been through such a long multi-stage process to do my Thousand Sons, which I think will end up looking good, but like, you know, it's been a long process to achieve a relatively simple effect, which is like metallic red. Mm. Um, with you know gold trim and everything else that like one side of that is you you know it took me it's taken me the better part of three months in which time getting distracted has meant that i've done like three other projects in the time that it's taken me to finish this one tactical squad right but now that they're getting close to done and the decals are coming on i'm like seeing the payoff mm. which is always what it's about it's right awesome, like yeah. it's always that moment where you're like oh shit this is why i spent all that time on it because you always just think about the stages right like yeah, i've gone yeah. into every day of painting thinking today i'm just going to paint highlights on the edge of all of the black bits or this is the time i do the second coat of red ink over the over the gold or something like that mm. whereas now that the bits are coming together it's like oh this is why i was doing it i was yeah. doing it so that i'd end up with a cool looking squad of space marines mm. which sounds dumb because obviously that's why you're doing it but still you can easily lose track of that yeah yeah they look sweet though, and and that Prospero set is really nice. I can't wait to play the game. Yeah, it's going to be really, awesome. really forward to playing the yeah. game. So we're getting close now with that set done that we'll both be able to play. Yeah, I need to paint up Gregor, 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 the man who likes wolves, yeah. who leads the space wolves. Gregor Wolf fan. But uh, yeah, I mean the, the whole premise of that uh, game is crazy. The, I mean, I'm definitely the aggressor. Like if the space wolves come down and they just kill. 
all the humans in a city because they don't like the fact that the thousand sons are reading too much <laughs> in their giant library it's great like um it's such a cool piece of fiction like and it mm. kept me kind of excited to play that game and hypothetically maybe to build out a 30k force eventually because i do love the thousand i love the thousand sons fiction and like yeah it's great. you know great. also i'm basically looking forward to being able to say the phrase don't talk to me on my thousand sons ever again <laughs> over and over again that's going to come up in prospero isn't it yeah that's going to say that every time i'm going to say that every turn <laughs> fantastic i need some space war puns yeah i'll think of some um don't talk to me on my thousand sons ever again said arzik Araman, <laughs> first librarian of tisga <laughs> um he's awesome love that model yeah the great model um otherwise i guess my month has been so this has been a really interesting month for x-wing and like we didn't talk about x-wing last time we sort of thought we might and yeah. then um didn't because obviously it's a game i play a shitload of mm. as an interesting game but you don't you though you've got some bits yeah and I've, got, I've got a, uh, i've got a small scum force i don't know how to use <laughs> <laughs> but uh, i'm I love the game. I think it's um, a beautiful rule set. Yeah. We should actually play it. Yeah, more. definitely. I need to, Please. you can teach me some things. Yeah. Um, so it's been a really, so, you know, one of the reasons we didn't talk about it last time was because ultimately, like, I think I hadn't crossed over a certain threshold of like interesting times, mm. but this has been a really interesting month in X-Wing. So if you don't mind, I was going no, yeah, to tell you a little bit about how things change. So I, um, so I went to, uh, a regional tournament at the beginning of, of this month um, in Cardiff. I did Cardiff Regional last year and did all right. Came 17th in Cardiff Regional last year. It's out of 100 or something. People oh, wow. so, like, um, but X-Wing has been in a really strange place for a while. So this is Fantasy Flight's Star Wars dogfighting game. It's, it's, an, it's a, a beautiful game. Like, and I mean that in the pure football sense. <laughs> like at its core, it's a really beautifully designed game mm. that gets a lot, a lot right. Like it finds it's a, it's a brilliant balance of what I would describe as like analog and digital skills. Yeah, like yeah. some of it is pure list building, squadron building strategy, um, understanding how upgrades work and how to deploy them, dice rolling and, and finding ways to secure or to, you know, try and increase the odds that your dice are going to go your way, that kind of thing through strategic decisions. Part of it is also this analog layer of, um, setting a maneuver for your ship but without being able to measure it in advance yeah so having to so playing x-wing over a long period of time and i've been playing x-wing for 18 months now i guess competitively um you gain this genuine m muscle memory is the wrong word for it it's more like muscle vision which doesn't make any sense <laughs> a kind of spatial awareness yeah so. yeah genuine spatial awareness mm -hmm. for like you know when i started playing i wouldn't be able to reliably tell you where a two-speed bank maneuver into a barrel roll could or would take you mm. both for myself and for my opponent now i can yeah relatively reliably and that's a really satisfying thing that's something that um i think games like age of sigma have but not to the same extent mm. um because it's, you're talking about bubbles of either potential movement or bubbles of yeah it's, it's softer as well you can measure everything yeah. with your opponent you know so you know yeah you can pre-measure everything age of sigma. you can you can pre-measure yeah. almost nothing in it in, yes. in x-wing <laughs> And, um, and also because X-Wing is simulating the movements of, of spaceships that don't just stop, or well, most of them don't just stop. Um, your previous decisions have a big bearing on what your next decision has to be. There's no Age of Sigma style kind of moving forward, stopping, going backwards a little bit. Yeah. Kind of, yeah. Um, not, it's not a qualitative distinction. It's just a very different thing. Hmm. Um, but one of the things that, um, 
has happened with X-Wing and, and it's been interesting is um, the way that power creep manifests in a game like that. Because mm. arguably, because the way that power creep expresses itself in X-Wing is through more powerful upgrades and that kind of thing. Upgrade cards that come along that just do things better than the previous generation of cards did. And in Magic the Gathering has had things like this, like most, most living games yeah, do, right? Sure. Like, uh, Age of Sigmar certainly will, right? There'll be stuff that comes along that's just better, right? It's already seen some of that stuff, yeah, right? Yeah. They've had to adjust shooting for obvious reasons. And they're going to cut back on the Colonel Hunters and Silvernet, I think. In yeah. General Sandbook too. Yeah, definitely. So, um, but one of the really interesting things about X-Wing is that because it has, it's essentially, because it's essentially two games, it has the card game and it has the positioning game. Um, the power creep is most strongly felt within the positioning game. Sorry, within the card game. The positioning game is affected by it, but only if something like a ship is just too maneuverable, which has happened. Mm-hmm. Um, for the most part, it's within cards that power creep is most keenly felt. And as cards become more important, um, the positioning game, the strategic game, the kind of second guessing your opponent's moves game, becomes less important and it reached a point i felt where and a lot of my friends felt where increasingly um a narrow selection of extremely powerful upgrades had meant that while it was possible to win with an out there squadron or an original squadron the best things in the game was so good that when you're talking about coming first in a, in rounds of Swiss out of hundreds of players, you take the stuff that's reliable yeah. because it's easier, because it requires you to make fewer decisions, because it is more forgiving of mistakes, because the positioning of your ships matters less. And that isn't to say that the best players don't ultimately rise to the top, but there's an element of randomness in any large tournament. And that means <coughs> that the best it's not just the best players that rise to the top it's the best players with the 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 squadrons that are least likely to be upset by random chance mm. that's just maths and the game had got into a really unfortunate place and this actually led to something strange which is uh that regional and i've done a lot of big x-wing tournaments but that regional was the first time i've ever been like walked away like having to admit to myself that i had no fun mm. and because i brought something that i really liked um and was was competitive um and i had a just a, a rough day like not like a lot would cop to most of it being like stuff i had to own with a few moments of like one specific specific moment of fucking terrible luck <laughs> where essentially there's there's um you have a damage deck of 33 cards each of which has critical damage on them there were two cards in that deck that completely fuck me mm. if they if they come in a particular matchup, and I managed to pull both of them, which is just total luck of the draw kind of thing. So that happened, but that's not really the most important thing. The broader point was that I realized about halfway through that tournament that having brought my own thing, given you know, just law of averages, I couldn't compete with how efficient the most efficient stuff in the game right, was yeah, yeah. and how forgiving the most efficient stuff in the game was. So you've got a kind of a tier of lists there. You've got it's like, just, yeah. yeah, you've got the competitive tier then and you have the fluff tier, yeah. which is what used to happen in Warhammer Fantasy. Absolutely. So, and like, I thought I had like, my list was relatively competitive, but it was the knowledge that like, I need good matchups all day if I'm going to progress. And I hit meta stuff quite a lot. Mm. And it was sort of like just holding my own, but having to work my fucking ass off for every inch of ground and often having opponents 
just you know just having an easier time of it because more powerful upgrades well, they just drive around with turrets and they it wasn't it's not it was it actually it's not turrets really it's, uh, okay. it's more to do with action efficiency and stack defenses but right. like they won't get into the yeah the bits of it but mm-hmm. like um so actually i walked away from that tournament thinking i think i might be done for a while mm-hmm. like i've got a too big a collection of x-wing to move away from it completely as you can tell yeah it's amazing um, um we're sitting opposite um chris's bookshelf full of uh, the miniatures are beautiful actually they're they're their miniatures are really nice for pre-painted. They're, they're lovely yeah, yeah they're pre-painted really, really things good. like i painted a few of them myself but like mm. they're yeah they're such good miniatures for for, for um for pre-painted particularly and they're getting better as well um i thought i need to if not move away from the game move away from tournaments i'm going to stick to playing with friends i'm going yeah. to just sort of move away from it and then <coughs> to the extent that i went and emailed a friend and said look i'm dropping out of your tournament i need a break from this mm. like i'm just a bit tired of the way the game is played at the moment three days later fantasy flight released an faq update that catastrophically nerfs all the things that annoy me <laughs> about the game like so annoyingly not three days too late to save my experience of that particular regional but mm. there was this huge like, it was a really interesting experience because it was this feeling of like having a weight off because there's a lot of it's a very loaded thing in any competitive setting to say i feel like the game isn't fun anymore because the things other players are using are too forgiving mm. Because obviously, like every every game, challenges players not to get frustrated, not to get salty, not to get, mm. not to you know. And I think whenever you are, whenever you find yourself thinking this other guy's only winning because of his overpowered list or whatever it is, yeah, you have to analyze your own play mm. and you have to think about what you could have done differently. And in every instance, there is always something you could have done differently. But I had reached that point with X-Wing where I was second-guessing myself constantly, but I was like, I think this is too good. Mm. Like, I, I think you're getting more for free than I am. Yeah. And for the same points value. And I don't think I can get past this. And that was where my kind of decision to move away from competitive play came from. So to have the the creators of the game come along and express agreement with that idea by nerfing stuff, in some cases extremely heavily, um was it made me feel like i hadn't just lost my mind if if that makes sense yeah like it, like i i was actually not wrong to feel like the game was in a rough place because you know they they nerfed one particular combo so badly that a particular list that won worlds won the world championships last year no longer works hmm. it can't be done because it was broken and that's a that's an important thing to express i think i think there was some uh it sounded to me from talking to you about this that if you looked at like the top 10 lists for various tournaments, for the big tournaments, you'd see the same list over and over and over and over and over again. Yeah, absolutely. Which is which is a massive symptom of a list that is overstretched, overreached. You know, the power reach has kind of gone a bit too far. If like eight out of ten lists are the same thing, yeah, that's not good for a competitive yeah landscape. poor factional balance and stuff as well. Right. Like so, you know, scum were absolutely ascendant in every possible way, and yeah. and that was a thing, right? Like, and and you know, the game has shifted over time, but. But yeah, so that was an interesting experience. And since then, I've sort of tentatively made my my return to it. And because ultimately, I do love that game. Mm. But there was a, yeah, it was, I think it's still, I, I don't think, I don't think the, the dark times are behind us. I think, like, there's the ongoing challenge of balancing X-Wing has been really interesting just from a game design point of view. Yeah. Something that's, they've just announced the next wave of ships. And something interesting that's happening is they're finally seemingly properly flattening the differences between the factions Hmm. previously imperials rebels and scum had meaningful differences 
And one of the things that went wrong, arguably, with the game was that those differences got eroded quite a lot, which is pretty much that Scum got given a lot of the toys that previously were the things keeping them from being mm. having everything. Um or almost everything. Um, whereas, you know, in the next wave, there seems to be a kind of decision that, hey, okay, we're going to actually have a relatively flat game mm. with subtler differences between the factions, which is an interesting direction. I'm kind of curious to see where it goes. Yeah. Essentially, it means giving Imperials loads of turrets, which is a thing Imperials never had. Okay. Um, but, you know, without getting into the, the boring details, like, it's, it's, it's really interesting time in the life of that game because it feels like it's now a mature game that has to account for the fact that it has 11 waves of upgrades mm. that started to cause problems for each other. And I've had so many deep and meaningful conversations at tournaments with X-Wing friends about this, but you know, it'll be interesting to see if it reaches the point where it requires a ban list like yeah. magic has mm. or like a Ricard rotation or something like that. Whereas actually one of the things, as we said at the beginning of this podcast, one of the heartening things about age of Sigmar at the moment is they're setting this precedent for like a yearly battle tome for the Stormcast, perhaps a yearly general's handbook update and all of that stuff allows them to make soft balance adjustments to a game that's a lot looser yeah. and gives me a little bit more hope that it'll kind of remain it could be a continuum rather than a kind yeah. of, uh you know edition based pattern mm. yeah it's i think the my problem with x-wing is um it's very unclear how much it's going to cost me to buy into a certain wave and actually get the cards i need to play and i don't so much mind the expense as the uncertainty around yeah. the expense of a new wave. Whereas with uh, Age of Sigmar, you know, because um, there's a hobby draw there as well, I know I'm just everything's inherently worthwhile to me. But I don't want to be buying some X Wings to get a card that I'm going to use in my scum list or something, which seems to be where yeah. X Wing is at. Which where I'd like them to go differently with Shades by. Right. Like I'd love I'd love Shades by to have card packs. Mm separate to miniatures packs yeah definitely. like give me the character cards for the miniatures i'm buying but allow me to buy the upgrade cards separately mm. i don't think they'll do that no okay because i think the x-wing model has business advantages <laughs> it definitely works <laughs> they've loosened it up a lot like actually oh, they're getting better at it yeah like they're getting better at packing ships with the cards you actually need for that ship right um rather than the thing they were doing of like mm. packing upgrades for completely different ships in with with different things or yeah. like you know fixes and that kind of thing um, but it's not perfect. Far from it. Like, and, you know, it is still, it's a very different hobby to Age of Sigmar because if you play it competitively, you probably own one of everything, which would be insane in Warhammer, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, so interesting times of the game. Like, I think, I think they're moving in a good direction now, but we had a year now of, of, of actively quite bad X-Wing meta, and that's always concerning because it's such a good, it's such a good underlying game. Yeah. And it is now the, apparently the most popular miniatures game in the world. But yeah, the, I think the challenge of, I, I, I also think, I think the challenge of balancing X-Wing has been a surprise for Fantasy Flight. Cause I don't think they've ever had a game this popular before. Yeah. Or this, um. But they've, uh, they've, they do Netrunner, don't they? That's yeah. In, like incredibly competitive. Yes. But it's, I think, I think a card game is a little bit easier to, I, mean, I know, I know from talking to friends who play X, Netrunner competitively, it's had similar moments to okay. X-Wing. Right. I think X-Wing for me, if, you, if you're into game design, X-Wing is a really fascinating case study. Because of the two disciplines that it combines, mm. and that ultimately that um, spatial awareness aspect of the game is more interesting from a competitive point of view than the ability to correctly deploy upgrade cards. Right. Um, and so when one eats away at the other, it's to the genuine loss of the game, mm. and that's a really interesting archetype. Because, like, you know, to, nothing in Age of Sigmar or nothing in a Warhammer game kind of reflects that really. Like, 
if you play a TIE Swarm, so you're playing eight TIE Fighters on a board, your game is entirely setting the right maneuvers. Because you have nothing else. You've just got the most basic ship in the game and lots of them. And that can be up against, say, two large scum ships that are absolutely loaded with upgrades. Just two ships full of crew members and upgrades and everything else that give you shitloads of tricks, basically, where your position matters less than your understanding of the, the way in which different upgrade cards interact with each other. And both are valid ways to play. But if the game at its healthiest, those two things are balanced, mm. where it's just about which way you want to try and outthink your opponent. But the problem is when it becomes all about cards, then you might as well play magic. And that's the sort of the tricky... Yeah, interesting. Yeah, the tricky thing. Huh. That's enough about X-Wing for the month. Mm, fascinating. Yeah. Um, so on to the, you know, so you've painted your Celestin Prime yes. this month. Given that we attempted to set a precedent for the tips oh, about yeah. painting, mm. does anything spring to mind that you've you've learned or considered this month that you would uh, pass on to a yeah, painter? Don't ever paint prosecutor wings in any context if you can ever help it. <laughs> okay. Uh, so uh, the, those wings are just, I don't know what to do with them. I mean, uh they're these big spiky wings that um you know the stormcast flying units have and it's unclear whether they're supposed to be beams of energy or actually kind of corporeal like magic sticks of or, i thought them as i saw them as beams of energy i thought i thought so as well um so i basically just painted them white and then washed them with kind of uh half and half golem and blue uh glaze uh, but that doesn't really work. Uh, I've seen people wash them and then dry brush them white, um, but getting a kind of glowing energy effect on those wings. And th- there are probably like a hundred spikes on it that make up the wings and no one's going to go in and layer them <laughs> like by hand. That's just a nightmare. Yeah. You're not going to make a hundred power swords, right? No, exactly. Um, so it's just a really difficult part of the model and it kind of looks cool. Just white just looks slightly unfinished as though. I need to put some sort of effect on it. So it's less of a tip and more of a just kind of a warning. <laughs> of what the, yeah, warning. Stay away. Don't do prosecutor wings unless you absolutely have to. Um, which is a, uh, just kind of a shame in terms of like actually learning new techniques and stuff. It, the prime, uh, benefits a lot from freehand on the actual kind of maelstrom, uh, that he's sitting on, which have done as kind of a gradient from purple through to blue, but, uh, each kind of, uh, energy beam on it has been kind of shaded from white down to you know the color of the gradient mm. and put loads of stars in it and stuff like that uh, but those techniques are just stuff that i've done previously for the rest of the army but had to do a lot on this one particular element what is your method for doing stars because i really like the stars you've done on your cloaks and stuff uh i think it depends a lot on the kind of corona you put around them so ultimately they're going up to a near white color and that's actual star but it's kind of the what actually makes them look cool is the the color build up to that pinprick of light, uh, which comes entirely from the background color. So if it's uh, if the background is purple, you're going to want to build up through the purple color range into a near white point, uh, and that gives it the sense that it's a kind of a light that's illuminating space around it, rather than if you just put like a dot of white on a black background doesn't really look like a star like no. it's amazing how it just doesn't look quite right mm. you have to give them a bit of color backing uh, a little bit of a sense that they're almost like a light source in fog you know mm. how um the fog will like pick diffuse up the light, light. Yeah. A diffuse light a little bit of that uh, it, 
and it's, that's not how stars work if you actually look up at the sky <laughs> they don't do that but when it comes to painting i think that's a really important yeah. thing to, to do to make because um otherwise it just looks like a you, your paintbrush has gone wrong as though there's a splodge of paint there that it just doesn't make any sense mm. um but once you give it that a little bit of color around it it's almost as though, oh yeah, that's intentional. And it just becomes part of the rest of the model then. Yeah. It's interesting how important intentionality is. Like mm. as soon as you make it look like you deliberately did something. It then, becomes part, you, yeah. you buy into it more. Yeah. And yeah. the eye just kind of doesn't see it as a, uh, it's also, um, I think the thing with models is that very, very high contrasts. Like they, if you have those on your model, they should be in somewhere really important. Mm. Uh, so where that the eye is going to go to because, um, a big kind of value contrast in color tone is where the eye, the eye is going to pick up on that immediately. And if that's off or kind of doesn't make sense or is drawing the eye somewhere pointless like a cape, um, it has to be softened in some way. So that kind of gradient that a, a point of light can sit on softens it, softens that contrast and stops it from being um, too noisy a component of the model. Mm. So, yeah, I guess that that might that constitute a tip. Yeah. There totally you go. I did a tip. Yeah. Did a tip. Awesome. So, I mean, I don't have much to share this week because – Honestly, I've just painted shiny red men, but, um, yeah, but, uh, did, did you talk about the process behind that, uh, last week? I don't know last if month. I did. So, um, I'll share some pictures of, of the, that finished tactical squad with this episode, but mm. so, um, and actually uh, a friend was, was doing something similar for their corn. So maybe it's worth sharing the method. So I think now that, uh, as we mentioned last week, now that, um, Games Workshop has just um, released its like Artificer tint range. Yeah. That's quite hard to find and you have to buy all the tints at once. So it's not necessarily an ideal solution, mm. but that allows you to make, you know, add some red ink to some red silver or gold paint to make red metallic paint if that's what you want. Mm. Um, the way I have done my Thousand Suns is to spray them gold, then wash and sort of touch up, make sure that there's an even coat of, of retributor gold, then wash them with Reichland Flesh Shade, which is a good um, shade for gold generally. Yeah. Um, into all the recesses, possibly twice, depending on kind of the parts of the model. And then to paint um, using a, a non-citadel color of Vallejo Transparent Red, um, two or three watered down thin coats of red transparent, basically red ink, but none of the GW inks really are quite right for this. Hmm. Um over the parts that will be red until you get an even coat with no obvious brush strokes showing. And then to shade those parts of the model with Karaberg Crimson. And then to shade them again in the darkest research research reaches with null oil. Hmm. And that gives you, um, it's kind of an interesting way to paint because it's all about shading down rather than getting a base coat in and then doing highlights up to light Hmm. because it's, and in, in that sense is actually the, opposite of doing um non-metallic metals where you kind of create the impression of metal through mm. the use of matte colors it's all about starting with a bright metal gold and then tinting it and then shading it so that you have some meaningful because uh, the fact that it's a, a reflective paint will give you some depth and shading or not shading but some you know the the sense of the light hitting the material anyway yeah just the material does that for you yeah it's metallic but it doesn't look as good as it could without some actually additional shading and that comes okay. through the use of washes i found yeah a particular like you know caribou crimson and the null null just to kind of like around things like the bottom halves of shoulder pads to ensure that there is a more pronounced gradient mm. from the bottom of the shoulder pad to the top rather than just letting the light do it um, it's a very messy and time-consuming process and when i do my second tactical squad i'm definitely going to um 
do them in a lot of subassemblies, possibly entirely mm. subassemblies, which is, might sound nuts, but one of the weaknesses of this process is um, nothing can be wrong. Like not nothing in the recesses can be left behind. If you, you know, if you base coat a, tradition, a, 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 a traditional model gray or black and you miss a tiny bit in a recess, your eye probably isn't going to catch it as you look at the model. Yeah. But when the base is gold, mm. if you don't catch it, you can fucking tell. Mm. There's no getting around that. So it, it took a long time. Like originally I thought it was going to be a time saving measure. Um, I was wrong. <laughs> I was wrong because it's like a six coat process to Goodness get me. things to work. They but I really do like the way they look. They look great. Yeah. Um, and I think it suits the set. Like I think, it's, you know, it suits the Horus Heresy thing to feel a little more grounded, to be able mm. to tell the materials things are made of. Um, and then there's a lot of stages after that in terms of doing eyes, the black and so on. The other thing is to, if you do it, don't do what I did. Don't spray the entire model gold save the bolters and the guns and, and everything that's going to be black and spray them black mm. because painting black of a gold is a pain in the ass. Yeah. Gaze Workshop's um, a bad and black base coat. It does not cover well. No. Uh, it takes it took me like three coats to get over everything. Yeah. And so that's, that's one of the reasons it's taken me four months. And the next one won't take me that long, I don't think. But, um, but I suppose in terms of if you're not planning to paint red metal men, then the two things that I've maybe helpfully learned in a sort of transferable skills kind of way this month – one of them is to know when something is basically done enough because ultimately, even though I want these thousand suns to look good, I can always go back and, and improve the edge highlighting on parts of the black bits and stuff like that. Hmm. There are also pieces that I want to use for a game that we want to play. And there's definitely a point where not where I stopped trying as hard, but where I was just like, you know what? No one's going to fucking notice if the edge highlighting on the shell casing ejector bit of this bolt gun on the side of it facing the marine isn't as detailed as it could be. Stop it, you idiot. And that, you know, I because my return to painting happened with Silver Tower, I really wanted every model to look good because yeah, all of them yeah. do stand in isolation. I know that I'm going to be taking Thousand Suns off the table by the fistful, which is something I learned with my Pink Horrors as well, where I lavished all this time on them and it's like, I'm, you know, they've got one wound each behind a five up save and I'm often taking them off the board in like heaped handfuls. Yeah. And suddenly the amount of time I spent making sure that all their knuckles were highlighted doesn't feel like it was really worth it. <laughs> so there's a sense of like, I'm starting to learn to like know what each model is for yeah. and when, where it's worth dialing up the effort and where it's worth just going, this looked good from a distance. Mm. You're done. I think having, uh, like doing the prime again, it's like where your eye goes, your eyes go to the heroes or as they should do. Um, Obviously, you don't want your baseline units outshining your big important units, really. That's where all, all the attention and, you know, magic should go. Yeah. Um, the other thing is, so this has also been my first experience since I came back to the hobby of decals. Mm. Um, and I've got three of them fully decaled up now and I'm doing the rest. And I was very, very nervous about decals because they feel like the kind of thing that can go horribly fucking wrong. Yeah, very hard to fix, I imagine, if they... Yeah, I mean... So, and the thing that has helped me a lot is there's stuff called Microset and Microsol, which you can find on Amazon. It cost me about 10 quid for a set of both. Mm. These two little one ounce bottles. Um, and one of them, um, basically softens decals, makes them easier to root around. It smells like vinegar, probably because it is vinegar. Cause <laughs> I recommend you use vinegar for this kind of thing mm. or vinegar related. Um, you paint it onto your model and after you've soaked the decal in water and it makes it easier to move around while it's on the model and it softens it. The other one is the kind of miracle worker because what it seems to do is soften the decal to the point where it um, sort of not melts, but it kind of like 
sinks flush with the surface that it's on because mm. decals can often uh, you know whoever decided that um space marine shoulder pads should a be curved and b have decals on them is a <laughs> fucking monster because decals do not like curved surfaces but it's wrinkle yeah and, uh, yeah sort of catch themselves and, yeah. so one of your options is to slice little holes in them or slice little you know slits in them so that they oh, yeah, have okay. have a place to go but for the thousand suns um one of the key shoulder pad decals is like an ornate scarab beetle that is not going to slice nicely no. um and i found that the micro sole has been a complete lifesaver there and has really made that a lot more pleasant mm. a lot quicker so that's a that's less of a technique thing and more of a, I think if I, if you're doing a lot of decals on an army, I think that's really worth looking into because yeah. for a tenor, it's, you know, it solves the problem of, you know, there are certain, there are a billion tutorials on the internet of how to use vinegar and stuff to do this kind of thing. But I would rather spend a little bit of money to get something designed for that purpose mm. that I have faith kind of works properly. And then so far it's definitely felt very like it's made a difference yeah decals are the thing i've just not attempted yet i mean i could put some on my stormcast they all come with decals um but yeah that is good advice i think i'll pick up a set of those yeah or you can borrow mine but like i'll borrow yours for this the space wolves and if yeah. they work i'll buy i'll buy, buy some for my stormcast I think. yeah because it's yeah it's made a difference so yeah that's um i think that's our painting tips for the month yeah it is it's exciting yeah i mean we're gonna have loads of stuff to paint next month because yeah. all my vanguard are arriving in your I'm just gonna yeah lean into this hard. Yeah, I'm, I'm more like I, I've you know I've done my first almost month of freelance life now where mm. I know what the rhythm is and now I can do the thing I went freelance to do in the first place, which is <laughs> work a bit and then paint little men. Hooray. So that brings us on to today's game, I think. Indeed. So we played. Um, we figured so today was kind of an interesting one because it was very similar armies to the ones we clashed against each other last time in fact i don't think we had a new unit in yeah either. no the things that had changed in the meantime were the stormcast battle tome yes and its scenarios yeah so we decided to play one of the two scenarios in the new book uh which is a kind of breakthrough scenario where the stormcast defending a settlement and the their opposing army has to get units past off the off the board edge behind them yeah as they um progress lengthways down the table towards mm. them and uh so Zinch in this scenario needed to get three units off the board for a victory. Yeah. And it was really fucking close. <laughs> it was really fucking close. It was a really, really great game. It's actually it might be one of my favourite games that we've played actually, because yeah. it was the ones where it was it felt like the one where the, the identities of our armies meaningfully played off each other mm-hmm. rather than one of them simply rolling over the other. Right. It was because I mean admittedly, it. you know, our previous games I've never beaten you, but in the game where I, you know, we had one game where I almost did simply because my kind of shooting and magic power, like, annihilated you yeah. off the bat. Yeah. Whereas this felt like the time that our individual strengths didn't result in a clear advantage, which is kind of perfect. Mm. We also did, you know, so, um, you chose to keep your fulminators, which are your mini dragon riding cavalry and retributors, which traditionally caused me all my problems yes in the celestial realm per the new rules right yep that's right uh, the rest i i deployed in basically a, a shield wall across the board which the liberators are very good at there your your basic troops their big shields you can just form a line with them and they're surprisingly resilient they're just very hard to get through especially for siege um and then i put my big sort of shock troops up in in the realms of course the difficult thing about that is that you every movement phase you roll for each unit you have in the celestial realm and on three plus they come down 
and you don't really you, you have to roll for them so you can't sort of keep them off until turn three and then roll for them like they are going to come down when they come down basically mm. and, on, and on a three plus so you don't quite know what's going to happen a three plus is certainly not a sure thing no i mean it could they could have come down in any any way but um i wanted to get behind your pink horrors basically and didn't want those yeah. big guys getting swamped so so i think i was a little bit smarter with the deployment in this game than i have been previously so i created like um a I knew I need to get three units off the table. So I created a, a wedge of demons on one side of the board with mm. the screamers, my flamers, the herald of Zinch, and one, like a screen of pink horrors. And then on the other side of the board, I had another big clump of pink horrors, uh, next to a line of Kyric acolytes who are kind of filling in for pink horrors <laughs> in the middle, even though they're mortal humans and do actually care about being killed. Um, and then I kept, um, my agrothermaturge, Zangor, uh, Gaunt Summoner and Chaos Sorcerer Lord in a sort of central point behind them all. Yeah. Together. Um, I was worried about your ability to deploy from space because that's always been a problem. Yeah. In every game we've played. Um, but the interesting thing about this scenario relative to some of the other ones we've played is because I need to get off the other side of the board and retributors are slow. Mm. I had the idea that if I can stay out ahead of you, I'm not going to deal with them. I'm just going to run. Yeah. Um, and that, almost worked so um the other interesting decision that i've become more critical about is who takes the first turn yeah because i traditionally finished deploying first because i think you have more smaller units because stormcast like units of five men yeah it's... my units tend to be a bit bigger and there are fewer of them so um i took the first turn for two reasons because the, the downside taking the, the upside taking the first turn the obvious one is you get to shoot first and maybe you can kill some people mm. The downside is because of the rolling for the next turn mechanic, it means that potentially the other player can get the second, get a double turn. Yeah. Which is potentially devastating. Um, and I took the first, um, first turn partly because I felt like I needed to get underway. I couldn't risk getting beaten up. Yeah. It's definitely the right decision. In place. The other side of it is because your command ability with the Lord Teleton on Dracoth makes a lot of your units immune to battle shock. Um, I meant going first means you haven't had a chance to deploy that command ability, mm -hmm. which means that potentially you get one turn in the entire game where battle shock is going to be meaningful to you, which is the chance for units to run away. Yeah. So I kind of made that decision, but my first turn was like, it didn't go as well as I'd hoped simply because, so a few fail, crucial fail casting roles. So my gaunt summoner, whose job was going to be to sit on a bailwind vortex, big space tornado mm -hmm. in the middle of the battlefield, blocking some crucial areas but also with a huge spell casting bubble to support the rest of the army failed the casting role in the bellwind vortex um which was a bit of an issue um and then through all of my spells and shooting i managed to kill um so i killed a couple of liberators mm. and one prosecutor from your unit of prosecutors who was turned into tentacles he was fell to the ground and smushed into yeah into many many and then i um and it was, it was an interesting term because there was only uh one combat which was my screamers throwing themselves into your liberators yeah um which wasn't massively eventful but it did a bit you know the, the demon side of the of the board sort of did its job mm. and then an unlucky unlucky battle shock mm. roll meant that you lost 
one of the other prosecutors out of the unit of three. Yeah, they're always useless, those guys. <laughs> but this game particular, they had a really horrible game. <laughs> yeah. One of them just ran away when he realised that his mate... His just... mate turned into tentacles and yeah. fallen to earth. Yeah, so he ran, which is fair. So while it wasn't as good as I'd hoped, it was still pretty good. But then your first turn was, like, really set up the stakes for the game, I think. Yeah, so <laughs> I'd set up on my right flank, at, like, a trio of heroes. Stormcast heroes are quite good. Um when they're all together, they're actually surprisingly good. And they're actually part of a, a battalion, a formation that gives them a little kind of attack if they're within three inches of each other, which turned out to be completely useless for the entire game. Uh, but simply having them there and the artifacts they're equipped with made, made them quite a good threat. Uh, so my Lord Veritant, who's just gone to task on your army whenever he's been involved, uh, yeah, he, uh, he had a blessed uh, sword, which is an artifact, one of the new artifacts from Stormcast book, um, that gives him plus one attack. Unless he's fighting Chaos, in which case it's plus two attacks. So it's only has six attacks, and he is actually one of the best close combat heroes in terms of his attack. He's got two damage on his sword, rend one, which uh, is an armor save modifier. So I wanted to turn him into a kind of super hero threat, almost an equivalent of my Celestin on that flank. And then my Celestin could sit behind this building and peel either left or right, depending on how fortunes were going. Um, so that was all set up quite nicely. He was able to push forward the Liberators and kind of engage and then on the very first turn in my movement phase i rolled um three plus for both of my celestial uh realm units so the formulators came down and the retributors came down and uh, i just placed them behind uh chris's army behind his bundle of important stuff his zangor his general his gaunt summoner and then they had to charge and they deploy nine inches away have to deploy nine inches away uh, so you're looking for a nine plus on roll, roll two dice. They both failed their charges. Yeah. Which is statistically, you know, it's a hard Yeah, I was make. relying on that happening. I think if you made yeah. that charge, the game almost would have been it over. would have been tough, especially, I mean, the Gaunt Summoner would have been gone. Particularly because of the Vortex didn't come off, which yeah, is one of those precisely. kind of crucial... Which is why I wanted to do it, really. So, the, you know, um, the Vortex came up later. I tried to dispel it, but couldn't. Uh, I knew how important it was. Um, but they were there, and they were suddenly miles away from the action because <laughs> they'd failed their charge roll. Uh, I'd taken this gamble on A, that they could make the charge, and B, failing that, I might get a double turn, in which case they could just move in and charge anyway. So I thought, okay, that's game over if that happens for Chris. Um, so it's probably worth this gamble. Yeah. And didn't quite come off, but it put the game into a really interesting place from yeah. that moment onwards. There was a few crazy things. So that turn, the fucking horn man. Oh yeah, again. Yeah. The Heralder does the thing Heralders in every game we've played. Blew up a big stone chair yeah. by honking his big horn at it, and that no, that killed a Zangor. Yeah, and then I rolled a six on the battle shock chest, which yeah. caused further two Zangors to run away. Unlucky, like they they <laughs> was terrified of this chair that blew up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so a lot of my hench birdmen um, mm. ran away. Yeah, put a, a wound or two on your uh, thaumaturge minotaur. Yeah, I think it hurt your general as well. Yeah, your general as well. Yeah, that was a good. Yeah, toot. terrified of that ability. That is amazing. His ability to block scenery is, is, is terrifying. Yeah, it's really good. But one thing that was really interesting about this is that, like, at this point, it felt like we we both had loads riding on on the turn roll. Mm. Like, maybe it would have been a better idea not to expose myself to that danger. But I think it was right to take that round of shooting because your army is so geared around that yeah you have to yeah. get as many rounds of shooting as you can but still i felt very cagey because right. i knew that if if i lost this turn roll mm. then you would just flatten me yeah 
completely. It would have been bad. It would have been bad. <laughs> Luckily, I didn't. Mm. And that sort of opened the game up, I think. Yeah, for sure. Um, for us having another <laughs> turn and a half Tom smasher. Hammer. Yeah. Um, and what that allowed me to do is to get the vortex off, mm. which, because you can't enter within three inches of the vortex, creates a bottleneck. And to move the rest of my army out of the way of, and like also use the sort of punt ability of the vortex to shunt things out of the charge range of the fulminators. Yeah. Um, and then what that allowed me to do in the sort of subsequent turn of shooting was do a load of damage on the demon flank, basically, mm. um, wipe out the liberators, wipe out the prosecutors and start moving up towards the rest. Yes. And then the other flank kind of create this big tar pit with the um, pink horrors. Mm. The acolytes didn't last long, but also move the thaumaturge up and the um, tangle. Thaumaturge finally did the thing he's supposed to do, which is charge people as a big bull man might. Yes. Killed the veritant, which was satisfying because he's often a pain in the ass. Yeah, he did. Uh, the veritant did take out most of that... Uh... Yeah, the, the, the veritant uh, killed six Karak acolytes by himself. He did. Yeah, he, take, he really... He's supposed to be like your kind of anti-mage, but yeah. he's pretty good in combat. <laughs> yeah, he is. Um, and, um, and then, uh, sort of at this point, I guess for me, like a plan had formed, which is that like, I just have to get the demon flank through and slow you down with everything else. Hmm. Cause if I can get that through, I can get three units through and ultimately yeah. get a minor Double. victory or something like yeah. that. Um, and then I guess. I'm trying to think what followed for you on your following turn. I think the following turn for you is when the Fulminators managed to get in to charge the Zangle. Yes, they, um, so they moved up. They're quite quick, actually. I think they're about 10 inches move and they made their charge. So they went into the back of the Zangle and basically just absolutely trampled them, uh, which is what they're really good at. It's what they reliably do. Uh, the Retributors had to move around a big chair <laughs> and very slowly make their way towards the, uh, Pink Horrors. Uh, I tried to use a prayer, like I had a plan where I wanted to um, use a prayer called uh, Electric Chariot or something like that. Mm. Lightning, lightning Chariot. chariot. <laughs> um, so a char Chariot of Lightning ferries a unit uh, or an individual across the battlefield for 24 inches. So I wanted to, um, I tried to Lightning Chariot my uh, Heraldo, the horn guy, uh, and I wanted to Lightning Chariot him over to the Retributors so that you could blow his horn at them to encourage them to move faster. <laughs> uh, but they, he failed that. Pretty much all the prayers I attempted, I failed. <laughs> um, so the, the Veritant who had like a blessed sword, he had a prayer which would let him bless weapons. So he, I was, I wanted to bless his own weapons. So every six he rolled, he'd get another attack and he failed to do that just throughout the entire game as well. <laughs> so the Sigma answered no prayers. Uh, there he was just like, look, get on with it. I don't have time to be buffing your weapons. Just, just be doing your stuff. So that flank was going really, really well, uh, especially when the foremost are in the mix. They're just really, really good. They're really, really tough. There's nothing in the flank that could really hurt them. Uh, but there were, everything was miles and miles away from the demon flank. And uh, things were going horribly wrong on the demon flank. Everyone was on fire. The flamers were there. They were taking out loads of uh, Stormcast. The, um, the screamers were screaming. People were just being turned into tentacles all the time yeah and it was it was really really grim so uh, i yellowed my general into it to see yeah to save the day or try to at least <laughs> he had a proper you shall not pass moment of charging into the front of all the demons You're just right into right in the middle at of which them. point the dracoth did what <laughs> <laughs> so the dracoth uh, he's got a lightning uh, attack ability it's like a breath attack you pick a point on the battlefield and everything within two inches of that has a chance of taking uh mortal wounds 
uh, unless you roll like I did, in which case... Uh, got the three ones in a row. <laughs> yeah, uh, and the Dracoth just basically throws up <laughs> on his feet. And, and then the after that, the, uh, the, your Knight Venator's Star Eagle just did nothing as well. Like yeah. Like smacked into a nearby piece of scenery. Yeah, my, my Venator failed to hit anything, and then his Star Eagle, who was following up, must have, I don't know, crashed into my Dracoth or something. <laughs> it's just an absolute disaster. So I was ho- all I needed to do was take a, two of those units out, and the weak links there were the Flamers. And the Herald. And the Herald who is always quite easy to shoot off in my experience unless you roll loads of ones uh so my shooting just wasn't happening on that flank like uh in my first round of shooting i was hoping to take you know do more damage to the herald do more damage to the flamers and it just wasn't happening so it was actually i was like i could pretty sure i could lose this yeah um because i was down to one judicator prime who heroically withstood not even yet like this was oh, yeah, before before even that. so like yeah. so you have the one judicator prime left engaging the screamers yeah and then my flamers and pink horrors and herald facing the lord celestin yes um celestin kills my herald as it will be expected to do yes it really should do that yeah. <laughs> um charging the pink horrors and then i know knew at this point this was going into the third turn that a double turn could really hurt me and luckily yeah i it didn't happen again i got mm. the turn roll again and i knew at this point that the poor thaumaturge who at this point was fighting everybody by himself mm. uh killed the heralder as well but yeah. like that that whole flank is a lost cause really yeah. like um i had to just get through your salistant get through your judicator prime outrun the venator and, yeah. and get three units off the board on that side mm. um so through the, using both of the summoner's spells I managed to do a bunch of wounds. I managed to get the Lord Celestine to four wounds. Mm. At which point the Pink Horrors on that flank cast Unchecked Mutation on him, um, which managed to do um, three mortal wounds with a chance. And then it was one of those situations where if I roll a five or a six, it does one more mortal wound. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I managed to get the five, mm. which meant that he took his full four wounds and the pink horrors managed to magic the Lord Celestin off the board, turning him into tentacles. Yeah. Which means another tick in the box of the 999 times <laughs> I need to play the music of Zinch to him. I, uh, I've only just remembered that I, uh, my, uh, mounts now for the Stormcast have their own special abilities and, uh, I, uh, should have done more Well, I had a chance to do some mortal, do some revenge runes back. Yeah. But it doesn't really matter anymore. Well, we, there's a whole separate subject of things we forgot. Yeah. Like, I, I mean, I forgot that the Thaumaturge should regenerate a wound every turn. Yeah. So he should have been yeah. on full health when yes, he, he fought should. your dudes and he wasn't. No. Um, and I keep forgetting about all the buffs I've got and the synergies. And there's, things. So, there's so much going I on. I remembered more of this game than I have previously. Which I think the more went, you play with it, the more you'll just remember yeah. the rerolls. Um, and then, so then I realized that like, so I need to get obviously through the Judicator Prime who's in the way. Mm. I failed to shoot him off the board with the Flamers and the Pink Horrors and yeah, everything else. He just survived all of the extraordinary rolls yeah. he made. Um, he just didn't care. And this is like the third game in a row that that Judicator Prime yeah. has just done whatever the fuck he wants. Um, but then we had the most extraordinary, like, so at this point, like I'm charging you not because I want to charge you, mm. but because I want to move. And if I can make the charge roll, I can move up the board, which yes. gets me closer to the edge. Mm. And so my pink horrors are about eight inches away, which is KG on two dice. Mm. But I get like a 10. So the pink horrors make it in. They move up to the Judicator Prime. Not enough to get the entire unit into combat, but like they're engaged. get their in. They're in. Mm. The flamers are a full foot away. <laughs> they have a 10 inch flying move, but I want that move. Mm. So I'm like, I'm just going to do this as a Hail Mary. At which point I rolled two six. <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was pretty extraordinary. Yeah. That's photograph that moment. Yeah. 
um i yeah did a little victory lap of the room yeah, um it was a... and actually after after lord Sellerson died you suggested that we call the game right like i didn't think i'd be able to get across in time with yeah. my formulators and my anything else so the flamers move up and then in the following round of combat which does see bad things happen in ogroid town mm. um the pink horrors the screamers and the flamers all attack one judicator prime <laughs> and do not hit him no they completely with it yeah well he also he saves everything He's, he does he's four plus save yeah went really well for him he yeah. was amazing he was the hero of the game he was so he, held, he this one judicate prime holds up this entire demonic tide that's rolling but towards he's got a knife he's just got a dagger yeah and a bow that's all he's got With he doesn't knife. have a proper hammer and then so then led to your following turn yes <laughs> so the judicate prime shoots into combat into the flamers did you roll so he does like what six he does a d6 wounds right uh he does, yeah. So once he's hit on a two plus, by the way, um, because he's, he's the prime, uh, you roll d6 wound rolls and I rolled a six for that. So then I was rolling six wounds. I think all of them hit. Yeah. So that was six wounds on that unit. It wasn't quite, it wasn't quite enough to kill all of the flamers, uh, but you yeah. got them down really, really low. Yeah. He just point blank shot them yeah. with his electric arrow. Um, which is a pretty fucking badass move on his part. I mean, yeah. Well, what a guy. And then the remaining flamer was assassinated by that eagle who figured its the, shit the out. Eagle like picked itself up, redeemed itself in my eyes. Yeah. He'll, he'll be allowed back. And that put me in a really risky position because then I've only got two units on that flank. That's the thing. And that, that was the magic thing of just having, taking it down to two units. Then it doesn't matter what happens on that flank. Mm. That's done then. Really. Yeah. I still rushed my four minutes across just in case because, but it was mostly because the other flank was fine because the retributors had finally arrived. Yeah. <laughs> and they were going to take care of fucking everything, which is what they which did. they did. Which they did. Yeah. The retributors <laughs> they, uh, completely cleaned house of the pink horrors. Mm. And then. Yeah, I mean, we did make a slight mistake in that your formulators ran in charge, but it would have made an ultimate difference. Yeah, it was two inches in it. Like, I think they they didn't roll the long run. And plus, they, they, they eradicated a group of pink horrors that would have been in, inconsequential. Yeah. Because it would have just been two units. And at that point, it was such an interesting swing because it, you were racing to catch up. But as soon as those... Because the other thing is that I had a really good series of destiny dice rolls and I had, like, mm. the ability to regenerate destiny dice. And I had a shitload of ones in my destiny pool. Yeah. Which would be useless normally, but is amazing because if a, if you substitute, if you get a one result for a Battlestruck test on pink horrors, they come back. Right. And so I could just keep doing that. So yeah, I knew that yeah. like I had infinite pink horrors as long as you didn't kill the entire unit in one turn. Yeah. But that happens then sometimes. You <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's what retributors do and that's what formulators do. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I always, I love those units. The Stormcast Big Shock units, they really reliably do what they should do according to the fiction. Is they're, they're there to clean house. Yeah. When they're, they. There's a reason we call them the retributor bus. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're, they're the thing that, you know, the opponent always has to worry about and always has to think about because they are, they're just these badass units. Yeah. And so at that point, it had to be called because I had, mm. um, I only had two units left on the board at that point, but one of them was a gaunt summoner on a Bellwind Vortex. Yeah. Have to who would have had to have run through your entire army <laughs> yeah, to get to the edge of the board. So but, yeah, the, the library you were protecting beyond the edge of the board mm. was, safe again we'll say but maybe that's oh, how my, each my t- defeated streak <laughs> is maintained it is <laughs> despite looking like i was going to win for about a minute could have been the first time it was so close um i i forgot how slow your army is uh i think apart from the things that are fast that's the thing like, yeah like, that's right so the screamers are good they're, they're always going to go off but if you've had like a load of skyfires on the board 
you could have just flown them over my army and it'd been quite hard to stop. So I mean, it's, it, it, a lot of that's dependent on the makeup of your army. Mm. And because it was a, a scenario all about maneuvering and about fast movement, particularly, um, it was, it was pretty tough for you to break through the lines. But it was also, there were so many roles in that game, dice roles that felt key. Mm. Like all of the turn roles. Yeah, they felt all matter, really important. Sure. Yeah. Um, but equally, like things like the daft charge on my, <laughs> I think you're, you're Celestin whiffing all of those attacks. Mm. Like it's very hard to say who the dice favored in that game. It went both ways. I think. Yeah. But it made for a really unpredictable and interesting, mm. you know, uh, story for sure. Yeah. And it fits into the ongoing narrative of those two armies as well. Cause yes. like, yeah. even though I lost again, the, the kind of story of escalation feels like it applies there. Cause your Celestin died again. Again. Yeah. yeah. He's been um, reforged so many times now. Um, but also, um, that sense of escalation, like this was, this was close. Mm. You know what I mean? That's like they've had two confident victories in a row now. Yeah. This one almost got past them. Yeah. It's the one that could be the turning point. Yeah. Ish. We'll find out what that's like eventually. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's coming though. I mean, the more it's it saved off, the more it's going to happen eventually. Indeed. <laughs> cool. Shall we do some questions? Let's do it questions from miniatures questions thank you for sending us your questions everybody yeah we've had loads of really good questions it's been awesome yeah yeah it's been great what thank nice you for response yeah thank you for your feedback as well um mm, which we asked it. for after the last episode it's been very very heartening yeah yeah any feedback you have continue to tell us honk yeah. at us honk tell us how to do it better i just honked anyway lovely great fantastic so first up alex writes Hey, Chris and Tom, not really a question. I just wanted to write in and say that I enjoyed the first episode. That's good to know. And then he tells an amazing story, which is as follows. Having recently rediscovered the particular Zen pleasure of miniatures painting, I found it touching to hear you tell your own stories. For me, the breaking point was during a period a year or so ago when I allowed my research to follow me home. I'd taken the gamble of trying to use the tools of deep learning in my own field of neutrino physics <laughs> and decided that it was a good idea to take advantage of the only accelerated computing I had access to, my gaming GPU. For some months, not only did I have no access to my gaming machine, but it would also be running one prototype network or another, its constant rumbling a reminder of the gamble I had taken with my academic career. Deprived of digital respite and driven by some deep instinct, I found myself buying, constructing, and painting the Infinity starter set. For the first time in over a decade, I started to dabble in artistic endeavor, and it brought me total peace and joy at a time when I was genuinely having trouble sleeping. Anyhow, keep up the podding. Alex, P.S. The science worked out great. It turns out neural networks are just as excellent at electrons and muons as they are at cat pictures. <laughs> What an amazing story. That's an amazing one-upping of our version <laughs> yeah, of like, we weren't sure how to handle all of the computer games anymore, so we started buying Plastic Men. Yeah. Whereas uh, I'm an actual physicist. Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, that is an awesome story. Next up, Stuart writes, Dear Crummy Cream Cakes, definitely inheriting a... Crate Crowbar thing there. Crate and Crowbar pod question format. Um. As a long-term listener, jaded PC gamer, and ton to toy soldier coloring in fetishist, the podcast Cosmic Realms have aligned exactly with my interests to create the realm of podding. I'm not really an Age of Sigmar player, although I played a lot of Games Workshop stuff in my youth. I mostly do historical tabletop wargaming now, not out of snobbishness, but I think I'm just getting old. At 27, this is a worrying <laughs> trend, and also additionally from Chris personally. Fuck you, sir. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, at some point in your late 20s, I think all men wake up and just want to know lots about World War II. Or men in pantaloons with flags. I think that's not really the case for you and I, necessarily. No, no all, all, more about the, uh, the, the dwarves in flying boats. Yeah, me too, to be fair. I don't know what part of World War II they fit into. Mm. Um, the good part. 
Anyway, just wanted to say I'm looking forward to the next episode. Your explanation of Age of Sigmar and its various cosmic doodads is probably the most coherent version I've heard, which is <laughs> saying something. Good as me, oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, it's difficult to bring the topic up around these parts without ex-fantasy battle players foaming at the mouth and shaking violently. <laughs> I wonder what your thoughts are on how the old fantasy factions fit into the Sigmar narrative which I think works perfectly for the chaos weird men versus shiny armor good men type of games you've been playing. I think it's less clear how the other factions fit into the new high fantasy setting, given that they're still firmly rooted, aesthetically at least, in the Tolkien-esque low fantasy old world. Regards, Stuart. Hmm. Good question. I think death fits in really well with this, because um, the whole premise of the whole thing about... um, Age of Sigmar is that it's, it's essentially a war for souls, ultimately. Yeah. And control of souls as a resource, um, both from Sigmar's perspective and from Chaos's perspective. And the gash and death as, you know, the most seasoned, you know, it defines them. Mm. <laughs> uh, the idea of souls and being this malleable, useful resource, like that is what they're all about. And I think you can keep them as, keep hordes of skeletons, you can keep vampires and, you know, make them even more flamboyant. And I think that stuff sorts in quite well with the setting mm. and these themes. I think the issue is less with... There, there is space for low fantasy, ordinary people in the Age of Sigma setting perfectly reasonably. Like, mm. you can have regular people forming militias to fight impossible monsters, and that makes for perfectly good storytelling. Yeah. The reason where they, where they struggle, I think, to make stuff cohere is because so much of the old Warhammer fantasy battle stuff was taken not just from Tolkien but from history and mythology more generally. Right. Like, Bretonians are Arthurian knights. Yeah, That's yeah. what they are. Like, Sigmar has decided, the Age of Sigmar has, has tried to make stuff its own, whereas the Bretonians are always going to be Lady of the Lake, Lancelot, the Green Knight. Yeah. Like, there is, there is very little getting around that. Similarly, the Empire is always going to be Holy Roman Empire, Renaissance-era mm. soldiery, you know, freelancers and knights and things. And that's, again, hard to get around because yeah, it's specifically rooted in real history. They're doing what they can, I think, which is to establish that there are factions where those units can fit, but it ta- still takes, still doesn't look quite right. And I think that's something to be dealt with over time. Yeah, I think some of them work like flagellants and the old kind of Sigma cultists work really, really well in the new setting because mm. you could see them actually being the ordinary citizens of the realms. They could go that way. They're not likely to form, you know, gun lines and musket militias, but they are likely to form this kind of ragtag skirmish bands yeah um so that that stuff fits very very nicely you're right about bretonia though i can't see any way of them fitting that i mean it's weird having horses in age of sigma uh the, the mounts are just crazy and, and just having a normal horse with a man on it it's just it's almost underwhelming in that fantasy isn't it mm. i think yeah it's all of the stuff that draws specifically not just from the old world but from the real world is the problem mm. It's the reason that, you know, I suspect the reason they deprecated Britonia and Tomb Kings is because Tomb Kings are Egyptian undead mm. and Britonia are, you know, it's, it's Arthurian legend. It's by way of Mallory and, you know, like it's, it's explicitly. Yeah, it's rooted in our world. Yeah, abs- absolutely 100% rooted in our world. Yeah, yeah. And it's because, I mean, and, you know, honestly, like to be, you know, balanced about this it's because the warhammer fantasy traditionally was about cribbing from mythology Mm. um history and tolkien to populate our world with little smatterings of originality in there like Mm. the lizard men are original skaven are relatively original but there's a lot about it that's just stuff from other things turned into a kind of you know patchwork quilt of ideas and there's lots of love about that 
but I can also respect the desire to move away from it towards stuff that's more wholly owned by the creative teams making it. Yeah, I can see why people would miss it. Yeah, totally. Um, but other fantasy battle games are available. Indeed, yeah. Um, on the Tomb King thing, actually, I wanted to mention that um, if you miss that particular deprecated faction, then the fan-made Tomb King's Battle Tome came out last week. It did, yeah. Which is made by a guy called Tyler Mengel, who hmm. um, does Mengel Miniatures, which is a very good fan site. Yeah. Brown seems like a, a solid a dude. Great painter as well. Yeah, a very, very good painter. Mm. And in, in very minor personal news, there's a, also a, a associated book of lore and short stories set in the setting that he's come up with, mm. um, coming out relatively soon for which I have done writing. Really? So, um, you can find some chaos related Tomb Kings fiction. Nice. In that. I don't know when exactly that's coming out, but I think the Tomb Kings fit in more than many of the other kind of legacy factions that have been sidelined a little bit. Yes, they do. But nonetheless, I think... They ride giant snakes. Yeah, it's, I think it's more that their their associations are... I think they do fit. I think they do fit really well. It's mm. just... You can see why they... Met the thread they seemed to move along was yeah. which, fic- which factions have the most explicit relationship with mm. world mythology. That That's one... That's actually more of a guess than anything else, but yeah. Seems that way. Tomb, tomb Kings are way easier to reconcile the interesting about sitting than Petronians are. Yes. For, for sure. Yeah, for sure. And in any way, in any case... Um, Tyler Mengel has done that yeah. very successfully. So, exactly. you know, nonetheless. Um, Ben writes, Hey there, meeples and miniatures. Uh, firstly, I'd like to say how much I enjoyed your first episode. Thank you very much. Um, my question for the show is you mentioned how playing X-Wing had sparked your interest for more tabletop gaming in the form of AOS. So are there any other miniatures games out there that if given the opportunity you'd like to play? For example, Halo Fleet Battles, Malifaux, or some other system? Looking forward to the next episode, Ben. Hmm. hmm. Our Discord's been talking a lot about a uh, samurai miniatures game that looks quite cool. Yeah. Because I like samurai, and the idea of painting little samurai miniatures tickles my fancy. Hmm. I, um, while I was at that regional I mentioned, that X-Wing regional, I, I went for a wander around the other <laughs> sections, and Drop Fleet Commander has a bit of a appeal to me, which is a um, sort of in-atmosphere capital ship starship combat game hmm. with cool looking miniatures but i've got enough projects <laughs> yeah i have uh, enough projects yeah we've got our hands full with games workshop i'm keeping an eye out for the other stuff though because yeah. um yeah i'm interested in kind of different aesthetics different ways of modeling because games workshop obviously have their own they're very very good at what they do but they have their own sensibilities and i'm kind of interested to see what other companies would do yeah, for sure. Like, I think I just, I want to be, it was, it was really easy to take on loads of extra projects when I was moving through the stuff I was doing at such a clip. Mm. Like I had a very productive second half of last year. Yeah. But this break that I've sort of enforced break that I've been on means that I'm, I want to just get through the stuff I've got <laughs> and I might not buy another model yeah. for a couple of months really like mm. on any scale because I want to, want to get that stuff done. Yeah, I'll make right. an exception for Shades by. That's that's mm. where I'd make an exception. That, that sounded, I don't know, it sounds like it's going to be later this year. So yeah. maybe like late in the year rather than just summer. In which case, hopefully I'll be done with Birdman. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, no, I mean, there's plenty of games I'd like to try. It's just, it's also a realistic question of time. There's the old problem of like, you play every board game you own really once. Mm. Yeah. And like, you know, it's, you know, we're getting games of Age of Sigmar in, but it still takes a while to set them up. We're still working through Silver Tower, which means no demand for the new Warhammer quest. Yes, like, that's true. One thing at a time. Yes. Although I would be interested in trying some new stuff. So, you know, 
we shall see. I'll tell you what, actually, the other thing that would maybe pull me in a different direction, but again, it's Game Workshop, is the new version of Adeptus Titanicus, which oh, yeah. is the kind of the new Titan Titans. battle game. That's pretty cool. I, I, I like big mechs. Titans are awesome. I cannot lie. Mike writes, Hello, and he also goes on to say, Apologies in advance for the potentially lengthy question. We'll find out. I started playing, collecting Warhammer Fantasy and 40k at a relatively young age due to the influence of my older brothers. And like most people, as you pointed out, fell out of the hobby in my teens. However, I was never really able to fully extricate from Games Workshop influence. I played Dawn of War, Blood Bowl, etc. on PC, read some of the novels, had friends keeping me up to date with the lore and new releases, and I even played the odd Mordheim campaign with Tom, as a matter of fact, apparently. Well, so I'll... I don't think I wrote this guy's surname down. So I, just, <laughs> I just dropped this on you. Like what? It's, what? It's like, this is your life. It's like a ghost has come through the wall. And... Yeah. <laughs> Recently, though, I've been feeling a pull back in as if being sucked inexorably slowly down into a whirlpool with physical games such as Silver Tower and a slightly further removed Warhammer Quest card game. For a number of reasons, partly due, due to wanting to paint my Silver Tower models and partly due to hearing people such as yourself talking enthusiastically about the hobby, I've been considering just taking the plunge, but I'm stuck wondering how I should go about it. I know Tom said he went the traditional route of picking up the AOS starter pack, but what about Chris? Were either of you able to surface some of your old models and put them to use, or did you have to start from scratch? Similarly, with things like paints and brushes and terrain, is this going to be a massive investment all over again? Any tips and tricks you could share would be most welcome. Keep up the good pods, Mike. So, yeah. Yeah, because we covered the fact that I suppose we never covered where my stuff came from. But like, so my scene time explicitly started at the Silver Tower box, mm. right? Like, I can't use all of it, but like, I added a couple of boxes of pink horrors. I added um some more hero models, demons, flamers, and screamers. But like, it started with that box, which is where my Gaunt Summoner and uh, Ogre Tamaturge came from. Yes, the good thing about AOS is because the rules are free. Whatever models you have, you can use. Yeah. I think uh, in terms of like repurposing um, old stuff, almost all of it can be repurposed. And if you want to just sort of start playing, you don't even really need to put them around bases because you know the bases are yeah. You can you can fluff you can fudge it. It's fine. Yeah, just use the rule set. Um, I I, I'd like the idea of um, what's it called? Dark Age of Sigma. Uh, The the um sort of Inquisitor Twenty Eight format kind yes of thing. yeah um which is a kind of fan-made skew on age of sigma which is about like grimdark take on it with warbands that are kind of uh almost like aos via 40k but i think a lot of uh, existing wartime warbands would fit really well into that setting yeah if you wanted to play that way and also it's a good way of just building up a small force and playing with the rule set that way rather than having to invest in a huge army yeah so that, that's a that's a really cool um fan-led initiative yeah it's really led by a, a guy who goes by ex profundus on twitter who's yeah really worth following on twitter. yeah who's painting and and sort of and fiction writing around his models fills me with profound jealousy in a good way <laughs> yeah it's in great. a very good way uh and i think it's been coordinated through the grand alliance forums as well so we can put some links to that sort of thing in the show notes yeah absolutely and and you know you can dig out your multi models models and they'll slot right in i think yeah although that's i mean you know i think that's maybe slightly deep end in terms of reinvesting in Age of Sigma. Like what you want to do get in is you can just play straight away with what oh, you've yeah, got. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, for kind sure. of, because that, that sort of thing is also partly about a kind of aesthetic. Mm. Um, I love craft the uh, project. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. It's quite hobby focused that one actually. Um, but yeah, you can just buy anything really. Like the starting collecting boxes are mostly good. I would say, yeah. uh, particularly the death ones, even though the death isn't uh, as well supported in the rules yet. 
with new Buster Tomes or whatever. The start collecting death stuff gives you some just fucking amazing models. Yeah. Like the, uh, not the Coven Throne. It's like a huge, it's like a, an altar on, uh, just a sea of, um, yeah, ghost know, horses. Yeah. <laughs> That's a huge model you just get to paint straight out of the start collecting box and you'll get some cool knights and some skellies. Yeah. So there's lots of, Rindies. like, oh, yeah. Was, so yes, you can use your original stuff. I didn't use any of my old stuff, even though I rescued it from my parents' house because I really couldn't paint for shit when I was a <laughs> Um, hmm. but nonetheless, um, but yeah, the start collecting box is a good place to start. Terrain is nice to have, but when you start playing, it's not essential. And like, also there is very likely to be somewhere you can go in your area to play a game where they'll have their own terrain. Yeah, definitely. Whether that's your games workshop or somewhere else. So I'd say that's strictly optional. Um, like paints, brushes, that's an expense. Mm. I use army painter brushes, which are relatively cheap, but I use yeah. games workshop paints, which are not. Yes. So, you know, that's could be a bigger expense than your army. Yeah. <laughs> than your first boxes. I'd it's, say. you know, there's, there's no getting around that kind of initial investment is going to be, in the triple digits rather than the double digits yeah mostly basically. if you if you want to get like a start collecting box and enough paints to do them justice mm. you'd probably be shy of 100 pounds but not not very far shy of 100 pounds yeah so um that's the kind of investment you're thinking of the the way I've, i think about it, it is an expensive beginning the way i think about it is one you'll get used out of that paints those paints for a while but two uh, i think i heard it put this way well on the mortal realms podcast but the cost of a model is partly the time you're getting painting it as well yeah like it's not just pounds per you know gram of plastic it's each box each model represents a certain amount of time that you should be enjoying painting it Mm. because if you don't enjoy painting if it's just a chore to you then i don't yeah what what are you doing yeah (laughs) (laughs) um like um so that's the way i think of it as well like you know lord of change is an expensive model but i'm looking forward to not only owning that model but mm-hmm. the process of assembling it is going to make me feel good about stuff which is the point yeah yeah, yeah that's a good point but yeah nonetheless it is expensive so yeah i think in terms of the order of things that you list as being sort of concerned about the cost of um yes to using old models new models are a ways of getting them relatively cheap paints and brushes are expensive terrain don't worry about it yeah. Yeah. I agree. And I know who my, my kids know. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I figured it out. Okay. <laughs> uh, Fienya, who's one of my old Dota pals. Yeah. So we're hmm. doing the full lap. Yeah, absolutely. Um, right. All our old friends. <laughs> They're all coming out of the walls. <laughs> um, high miniature resin crate and converted crowbar. Firstly, loving the pod. It's something I'm now going to be anticipating every month while trying to find a miniatures pod to listen to for a while. Oh, hang on. Having been. That's nice to hear. My question is, what do you think about playing games with unpainted models? I've come to like it less and less as the years have gone on. I don't want to use a model that doesn't have at least all of its base coats on, a far cry from the legions of grey plastic of my youth. But I know plenty of people who happily use unpainted and sometimes very broken or badly put together models. I suppose it comes down to what your priorities from the hobby are, but why do people do this? Clearly, as podcasters, you must know. <laughs> Thanks for reading, Fienia. Um it's interesting that both of us immediately agreed to never use unpainted models yeah. without ever having had a conversation about that. Yeah, I think, well, I think for both of us, it was so obviously a part of the experience. Like, cause we could just play, you play any games, right? If we wanted to play like a hardcore, interesting festive game, we'd go and play X-Wing. But we wanted this aesthetic experience of having armies and building the universe and kind of seeing it on the, on the tabletop, which is not going to happen if the models aren't painted. Um, yeah. But it depends what you, what you want. If you, if you love pushing them around and being competitive and playing competitively, 
and they're just kind of game pieces to you, then that's that's fine too. Yeah. yeah, I think you know, there's nothing you know, play your way. But for me, I think the aesthetic part of it is such a huge part of it. That, yeah, for sure, it is. But personally, yeah, because also partly like putting them together is like the worst bit. Mm. You have to assemble them, I guess. Right? Like, mm. I mean, the, I suppose you could write down what the unit is on a base, <laughs> but like, um you know the gluing things together is the most boring part so if you're going to go through that faff to play a game mm. go the rest of the way and spend a hundred hours painting <laughs> <laughs> like i mean even you know we play this even, even though they just sigma's our focus we're both applying this to the horus heresy thing a game we picked up in october and haven't played yet <laughs> yeah because still we're, it. yeah we're still painting it mm. like it's still i don't know big part of it i mean it's big, uh, for me anyway I, I do agree yeah i mean i understand why people will go down to a game club and they just want to you know, road test a new army and they don't necessarily have everything quite up to scratch yet. And there are, there are degrees of formality to the way people play the game. Mm. So I think we tend to just make a day of it and kind of bring everything painted. So there's a degree of formality in a way of just kind of, you know, we're going to make this experience for ourselves. Whereas for some people who go down to a game club every week and it's just their Tuesday night every, every week, just turning up in, in that context with a few, some unpainted stuff that you just want to try out is just, you know, seems fine as well. Yeah, I get that. I think maybe because my X-Wing has got my kind of competitive need filled so resolutely. Yeah. I'm, I would be less competitive with Age of Sigma anyway. Hmm. Um, but like that really doesn't interest me. Like I want the experience of putting the models down. And it was nice. Like when we went to playing games workshop and like people noticed because a lot of the yeah. people there were like playing with unpainted models and, you know, it's not why you do it, but it's a nice feeling to the performative aspect of it, being yeah, able to lay like out it. all that painted stuff. That said, I do totally get the display. Like something that I thought was a really nice solution was um, Silver Tower, which is a game I really love, struck me as a really strange proposition uh, for some re- ways. Like it's a great introduction to that world. It's a, a fun, cooperative dungeon crawler game set in the <coughs> Age of Sigma that is a great entry point for people. And, yeah. you know, you know, we're playing it with you know, um, Pip and our friend Matt, both of whom don't play Warhammer in any other context, mm. and it's a way for them to get into it. However, the painting and assembly challenge for Silver Tower is huge. Yeah. yeah. Like, they're complicated models. They're, you know, they're going to take a million years to paint. Um, and given that it's also, you know, it's a, it's a valid offering to the board game community, yet with a degree of assembly and mm. craft hobby stuff required in setting it up, that is vastly in excess of any equivalent board game, which is, you know, a strange double identity for the game. But one, one solution I saw that I really liked was, um, I think it was someone on board game geek got a can of gold spray paint and again, a can of silver spray paint and sprayed all of the villains silver mm. and all of the heroes gold mm. and left it at that. Just game pieces. Yeah. And they're game pieces yeah, cool. and it works perfectly well. And it actually looks pretty good. Yeah. Like, you know, especially like if you're kind of trying to factor in time investment net relative to you know, so I spent the same amount of time assembling the models as that person did, but I probably, I spent easily, you know, probably 50 times longer, if not more, getting them up to painting them. Standard, yeah. And so, you know, mine look better, hmm. but only because of vast time investment of months rather than like probably most of a day it would take to do the rest of them yes. properly. Hmm. Like that's, you know, a crazy difference and they look pretty good and were perfectly serviceable for the purpose that they're required for in terms of playing a fun game with your friends. Yeah. So that I can kind of get behind. I think I really hate the the look of grey plastic. Mm. I think it's something about grey specifically. Like, you know, we were saying this earlier, but with the Shadespire stuff where they're releasing snap fit models that are in bright red plastic and bright blue plastic, that, even that is better to me. There's just something about... 
Yeah. The roughness of great plastic, particularly when you can see the kind of the grotty bits of plastic glue that are still hanging off something. That's what really I find kind of like, just don't want to have to look at that. Yeah. Get off my table. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> don't know why I'm becoming weirdly hardcore. About this. <laughs> I think it's because we enjoy the painting so much. I mean, it's, if you're going to go to a official AOS tournament, your stuff's got to be painted. Yeah. That is for, as far as GW are concerned, that's an, an important part of the hobby. Almost an entry, you know, mm. it's got to be to a certain, you know, degree of effort must have gone into actually presenting the models. Yeah. Which is a strange thing in a competitive context, but <laughs> yeah. it is what it is. Yeah. That is the nature of the hobby. I kind of agree with it. Russell writes, here's two questions. A, Tom, when doing your two base coats of gold, do you spray gold and then brush over that, or do you do two layers with a brush? I have a lot of little men sprayed gold waiting for my attention. Uh, I don't actually spray undercoat my guy's gold which is possibly a stupid move on my part being as they are like 90% gold mm. uh, so I they're... can lend you my gold spray when I'm doing <laughs> yeah, maybe I'll try some <laughs> uh, so, so spray uh, the trouble is it's very hard to paint a lot of matte colours onto gold after the fact I've discovered this <laughs> Chris has discovered um, so getting a lot of blue and stuff onto gold afterwards just I'd rather build up the gold from the grey undercoat I use which is like a I think it's not it's the one you use chris is an army painter one is it yeah army painter uniform gray is my base paint of choice which i like because it doesn't because all the acrylics are transparent and they all kind of take on the properties to extent of what's underneath them even if it's a base coat and gray doesn't kind of warp the color much at all so the gold stays at the kind of tone of gold it's supposed to be whereas i found previously that painting gold over white gives it just an almost kind of a very unrealistic hue which maybe because i've not done it right but um so yeah i paint uh retribute armor base over gray and two thin coats of that uh sometimes one will do depends and then depends how the retribute armor gold is feeling like yeah, it really does <laughs> that paint you don't know you don't know what it's going to do really uh and then right on flesh aid then warwick armor a couple of coats of that uh be thin and repetitive with auric armor because the more you build that stuff up the shinier your stuff's going to be eventually and then edge highlights with uh their kind of i can't remember what their gold highlight color is called but they've got one and then edge highlights in extreme parts with stormhost silver or rune fan steel which is basically just still silver so the very brightest parts of the gold should be that that is how the stormcast do do that's like 90 percent of them <laughs> that's how you're gold man and they're really satisfying because gold is just um just looks lovely <laughs> the b question is at risk of driving yourselves and the listeners mad given zinch needs mortal civilization to draw power what might its end game be or is it too inscrutable for our puny minds to comprehend looking forward to the next episode russell from australia and discord <laughs> um so this is in relation to the whole zinch kind of naturally taking precedence in the fiction after mortal civilization gets another foothold yeah so in like i think there's an, there is an element of too in, inscrutable slash woolly for you to comprehend yes definitely but zinch's focus is always traditionally on the great game which is the comp like the code of competition to the death between the chaos gods possibly more so than the other gods like mm. zinch is concerned with winning the great game so it, ultimately it's less about where you know screwing over mortals so much as being in a position to use mortals and mortal civilization to finally properly fully subdue corn and nurgle and slanesh 
yeah, I guess from Zinch's perspective, it's about having more pieces on the board yeah. that can actually do stuff and you can, that can actually work as the spirit of change through. Mm. Whereas if you've got a, a dead desert, Zinch isn't going to be able to, you know, where are the machinations? Where are the lies? Where's the betrayal in, yeah. in, in a, a desert full of nothing? Indeed. Well, you can find out a little bit more about that in the fiction tie into the endless deserts battle. Nah, time. Nice. Um, but yeah, nonetheless, like, so Zinch, is, Zinch I think is more anti, like, is the most anti chaos <laughs> of the chaos gods in a weird way, even mm. though it, it is also the most chaotic of the chaos gods. Um, you know, is beholden to fewer rules really because change is change, but is also the most concerned with winning the great game. Mm. So I think that's always the kind of way it goes. Like, yeah, getting one over on Sigma is nice, but it's probably nice because you can use it to screw over corn. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. That's the way I always think about it anyway. Mm. I, I re- and I really like the old, um, the older interpretations of the chaos gods where they're all, you know, they they are all um, sort of complementary and contradictory forces as well as beings with willpower and ambition and goals. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Cool. Very cool. Mm. I like Zinch. I like Zinch a lot as well, as you might be able to tell from <laughs> all my stuff. Finally, Ryan writes, Dear CNC, as a kid, I got pretty into Battletech slash MechWarrior source books and scenarios, so I never really bothered to play it. I wondered if you had any experience with it or thoughts if you haven't played it recently. Uh, and then he has another question, but to answer that first bit, my answer is, I love the MechWarrior games, but I have no thoughts on it otherwise. No, same here. Again, I've just played the games, but not played the, well, played the video games, but mm. nothing else. Nothing, none of the, none of the tabletop no, stuff. No. Although actually, a, I, you know, like I say, I want Adaptus Titanicus back partly because I want games about assembling mech suits and yeah. fight, making them fight. So nice. I would be into that. Um, as to a specific question, how do you feel about tabletop systems with a higher degree of granularity versus ones that are more streamlined and generalized? I remember the Battletech rule set as being very specific and complex down to modeling individual systems and body parts on every giant robot. This might be why the only game of it I ever participated in petered out halfway through and never found its way back to the table. On the other hand, I think the complexity of it is part of what made it interesting to begin with. Is there a sweet spot between speed and detail? Are there systems that manage both? Thanks, Ryan. I think speed is very important when you're actually physically standing somewhere with someone having yeah. to get through a thing. Uh, the faster and easier it is, the better just for, as a social occasion, I think to have more stuff happening. Um, for the really tight, complicated stuff, really, really granular stuff, video games exist and they do those calculations in milliseconds. Yeah. Simulators are, feel like almost like military simulators seem mm. like in some senses the inheritor of part of what highly granular tabletop military games were originally setting out to do. Yeah. Because, especially because they allow you to do that stuff in a single player context against AI where you're not, you don't have to find another human being with exactly your patience for intensely granular rules. Yeah. I think it's, uh, obviously it's cool if you've, if you're with an opponent who has the same degree of patience and investment in that, uh, the kind of realism of the scenario. Um, But I I wouldn't take that for granted. (laughs) So given that, fluid rule sets that let you just get on with things mm. for me the you know that's what board games tabletop games should be i think as well like when you're simulating something real like and understand the, de- the desire to go into depth to really fully get to every aspect of a, a real experience however when you're talking about a fictional thing like sci-fi or fantasy battle oh yeah your imagination can fill in a lot of the gaps based on simpler rules mm. you know the 
your imagination probably doesn't require there to be rules to account for a glancing blow into the side of a Lehman Russ, mm. right? It's There is space for that kind of thing. I totally get that. It's not to my taste, but you can, you know, we were talking about it today. We were trying to unpick some of the, because in some cases, AOS's rules, I would argue, they fit on four pages. And in some cases, they might be a little underwritten. Yeah. Not clarifying particular scenarios. Well, because the move, moving and piling in and stuff. Definitely. Yeah. So we had this issue with piling in today yeah. about, because yeah. we found that when units pile into combat, it means that units charging have almost like a magnetic effect hmm. on the units around them. Because it gives other units the chance to join that combat, which can effectively in some scenarios match to a free move, hmm. which was of of pointed importance today because of the need for me to get across the table quickly mm. using combat as a vehicle for that with some trade-offs i.e being in combat yeah um where i don't want to be ever yeah. then have to fight yeah exactly yeah. um but like we found that we solved that problem partly because we're just thinking about it <coughs> aesthetically in terms of you know in terms of what happens when a big man Honored Dragon charges into a melee with a load of demons. They pile in on him. So even if we weren't playing the rule quite right, or we were having to guess a little bit because the rules weren't completely specific, Hmm. we did what made sense. And it worked out perfectly well as far as the game was concerned. And it didn't require an extra page of rules on like secondary pile-ins in this scenario. Mm, With diagrams. With diagrams to explain granularly how a pink horror should react if a big man is near. Mm. Right? Like we just figured it out because it looked right. Right? It looks like, you know, your Zelestant has charged into this fight as a kind of last stand maneuver. Of course, he gets mobbed by demons. That's yeah, kind of right. That's what and, you know, the, the rules allow for it. They seem to encourage it. So we went for it. Hmm. And it didn't require the extra layer of granularity because our imaginations can fill in the rest of the way. Hmm. And I think that I, I genuinely prefer that, I think. Because the majority, like, I think there's a tendency in tabletop games of the last, you know, particularly of the big previous generation of tabletop games to completely overthink rules. Hmm. And I think the current generation of pen and paper tabletop games, role playing, and now miniatures games and war games tend are tending towards fewer, broader, more accessible rules. Yeah, I think it makes the players in part responsible for the experience, as 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 responsible for the experience as the rule designers. And rule designers can't know every type of person and every type of, you know, they can't know what everyone's going to want to get out of the game. So actually bringing in the players as authors of their own experience to that extent of saying just, okay, you figure it out, actually. We've given you a framework, but it's also on you to make the experience what you want it to be. And that just seems like it circumvents so much frustration and so much kind of rules lawyering Mm. by just saying it's on you. Actually, you know, you're a creative part of this as much as the rule designers are. Yeah. Uh, So let's share responsibility for having fun. (laughs) Yeah. And I, yeah, completely get behind that. I mean, maybe that has limits when it comes to tournament play. Yeah, definitely. But again, the vast majority of the games you play will not be in tournaments. Mm. So you want a rule set that is fun to play the rest of the time Mm. because that prevents all the other games you play from simply being practice for looking up things on the big table that tells you whether you won or not. (laughs) That is all of the questions we have for episode two of Miniatures Monthly at the Crate and Crowbar. Thank you for your questions, everyone. Thank you. And if you'd like to send us uh, any questions or feedback for a future episode, you can email us at miniatures at creightoncrowbar.com, which is exciting. I also wanted to say, because I didn't say at the start of the episode, um, thank you to Mike Debenham for our amazing (laughs) intro and soon-to-be outro music. 
sent to us completely unbidden after we said we were looking for music on the last podcast yeah, it's amazing. and genuinely phenomenal. So good. So we put a link in the show notes to his website. Uh, thank you again, Mike, for sending us that. It's amazing. Uh, I, I've said that now, but you know what I mean? Yeah. It, uh, absolutely awesome thing to have done. Um, if you'd like to follow us on Twitter, you can follow the Crate and Crowbar generally at Crate and Crowbar. You can also hang out with the Crate and Crowbar community on Discord. The link is on the website at crateandcrowbar.com. And there is a dedicated channel called Table Talk where people like to talk about miniatures and role-playing games. Mm. If you would like to follow us as individuals, you can do that. I'm at C. Thurston. That's C-T-H-U-R-S-T-E-N. And you are at Tom? PCG Ludo, which is PCG L-U-D-O. We also both have Instagrams that we use to share pics and miniatures. We do, though mine got hacked, so it had to be deleted. Really? Yeah, who the fuck what hacked the f- some miniatures? The fuck? <laughs> are you going to do it again? Uh, yeah, definitely. I- I'll, um, I'll let you know. Okay, I'll, I'll shit. Alright, <laughs> I genuinely thought we had that Drama. problem solved. <laughs> who the fuck hacks uh, miniatures Instagram? I don't know. That's bizarre. Yes, very right, well, Anyway. <laughs> mine is, um, at Exit Warp on instagram which is e-x-i-t-w-a-r-p finally uh miniatures monthly and the crate and crow more broadly is very kindly supported by our patreon backers at patreon.com forward slash crate and crowbar if you want to check it out you can find out why we do thing we do how we pay for thing we do with money that you do thank you very much to all of our backers because it's much appreciated and does allow us to do extra fun things like this very miniatures podcast indeed indeed I guess that's it for this month. See you next month. See you at the end of April, everybody. We paint tiny people. We paint tiny people, then we play with them.